There are 33 doctors in the Holy Catholic Church, 33 of them. Today we're going to be talking about one of them. And by the end of this podcast, you are going to know more about St. Robert Bellarmine than you have ever known. And it will give you some historical context into the 16th century and to the Counter-Reformation. So let's get started. Living the Faith Podcast. Brought to you by Restoring the Faith Media. RestoringTheFaith.com This is the Living the Faith Podcast. Brought to you by Restoring the Faith. We're here in the heart of America. So glad to be back with you. I haven't been with you guys in a while. As you can see, I'm not alone in studio today. We are graced to have Ryan Grant, noted historian. Uh, Mediatrix Press? That's right. That, that's uh, I, I'm the president, actually, of uh, Mediatrix Press. The, the president? I mean, I have not had a president walk through these hallways before. <laughs> I've, had, I've had some pretty interesting people uh, come into the heart of America. Uh, please, if you like this content, subscribe to the channel, uh, share it on Facebook, etc. Let me just say it sounds grandiose, but it actually means that I work harder and get paid less than my employees. Is that what that means? <laughs> yes. That's very Aristotelian of you, I think, in terms of uh, the definition of a president. Um, we, uh, <laughs> we need to know, Ryan, I think now more than in most times, perhaps, a little bit about the, uh, the work of St. Robert Bellarmine, because if it's lost to history, um, then we can't profit from it. No, that's correct. And St. Robert Bellarmine was one of those people that um, his, his, he had an intensity and a brilliance of thought that he brings with him to almost any, uh, any discussion, even mm. those he wasn't particularly interested in. So, I mean, he was a Jesuit, and as a Jesuit, he was trained in the Roman college, which meant that basically it was Aristotle, Aristotle mm. all the time, Aristotle in... Uh, both good and bad Latin translations from the Greek or from the Arabs even. Mm-hmm. They were still hanging around. And uh, you studied na- uh, the physics, which is basically the science of nature. You would study logic, ethics, metaphysics, uh, all, all these complicated things and discussions in Aristotle. Mm-hmm. And so St. Robert was very expert in all these things. He was always chosen to defend any, any you know, against all the doctors, any particular question on... Aristotle's conclusions on this or that subject. Uh, again, when he was a Jesuit brother in northern Italy, um, in, uh, he was studying theology at the University, University of Padua, and the Jesuits put on a little competition to see which group of, of their students could to, you know, speak better in a given subject. And Bellarmine, again, was the, uh, you know, the chief laureate of the, of the entire uh, contest. Uh, even when he was a kid, yeah. He used to make and give sermons. Like he's actually uh, Fulagatti, who was one of his earliest biographers. He actually records how Bellarmine would practice saying mass, and then he would get on a stool and practice preaching before his siblings. And then, as a teenager, he would actually be asked to give orations in Latin in in uh, Montepulciano, in the city he was born in, and and he would do that actually on request. The, the Jesuits uh, were, were running the school he went to. And there was a, a big problem because the other the Jesuits didn't charge any fees, so mm-hmm. the school local schoolmasters are, are charging. Hey, unfair competition! And eventually, they mm-hmm. they started um, 
attacking you know the Jesuit school and whatnot. So St. Robert, they, they proposed to have a debate, a public debate, whether there should be a, a Jesuit school in Montepulciano. And so St. Robert got up and gave a, 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 a speech that was so brilliant for its oratory in Latin uh, that all the people that heard it were just, just you know, stunned by by its erudition, its beauty, and then went, we're going to sign up at the Jesuit school because, hey, if this is the guy they produce, this is great. We want our kids to be like this, too. <laughs> so, <laughs> so it... Um, and, and just to be clear, this was at a time when the Jesuits were not a, a force for evil in the world. This I mean. is when the word Jesuit evoked uh, reformed priests that were truly living the life of the gospel mm-hmm. and did not evoke uh, dying like flies for liberation theology mm-hmm. in South in South America for some Marxist liberation movement or something. Right, like that. right, right. Uh, so the, the the opening sentence to uh, this short biography in this book about the thirty three doctors says that his first ambition was to be a doctor of medicine. His final triumph was to be declared a doctor of the church. His parents were. Poor gentry. So Montepulciano has got a, uh, the, the city he's from. If you know that name at all, it's probably because it's the name of some wine that you bought at the store. Um, and it is known for uh, being a good, you know, medium-grade Italian wine, you know, good tasting for its price range. Um, <clears throat> that And if you go to Montepulciano, you got to take the road because if you get off the train, well, there is a train and there is a stop that says Montepulciano, and you'll be looking into the mountains like two miles away and have to <laughs> have a long hike ahead of you. So it's best to... <laughs> Take the train to Siena and then take the bus in if you ever want to visit there. But so the story behind that city is that it's the ancient city of Clusium, which in, in Roman times was one of the strongholds of the Etruscans, where Lars Porcena, according to Roman uh, myth slash history slash both, uh, declared that he would destroy the, the 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 future destiny of Rome to rule Italy. So. Anyways, like all the tribes in Italy, were eventually conquered by the Romans. And so it was a Roman town. And in the 7th century or so, it was, uh, Clusium was ruined by an earthquake. And so the gentry and the lower classes were at odds with each other. So the gentry went up into the mountains, founded their own city. And the, uh, the, the lower classes went and founded their, their city nearby mm-hmm. Clusio mm-hmm. versus Montepulciano up in the mountains. And so Armand's... Uh, uh, Polizianus, which actually is is in you know all of Bellarmine's writings, he actually gives the name of his town there, Mons Polizianus. Uh, there's another fellow that was important from that city named uh, Polizian, and he was a famous poet in the court of Lorenzo de Medici, and so he actually gives that name to himself, Polizian. But he was from Monte Polizano. Also, a number of popes, churchmen, etc. Uh, St. Robert Bellarmine's own uncle was Pope, uh, Pope Marcellus II. He was Pope for about 30 days and he died. But he was a really famous uh, reformer, Marcello Cervini, uh, reforming Pope. So it was already, he had already given a number of cardinals and bishops to the church. Yeah. So, but it's still, a lot of the people who lived there were essentially poor gentry. Um, they were gentry sometime like in the early Middle Ages, and now they were penniless. So St. Robert early on, his health was always broken. He was always in very poor health. And the idea came to him that if he studied medicine, not only might he be able to cure his own health, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but he'd be able to provide for his family and make his father happy. And well, that because was, he came from a pretty large family, right? He did. And his mother was very much addicted to almsgiving, even though the, their own family could have used alms, actually. His mother was very pious. He had, like, he had seven sisters. He had four or five brothers. Yes. I mean, this was a large Catholic family. Mm-hmm. 
And and actually, you can still see Bellarmine's house in Montepulciano. If you go there, they still have it there. You can see the cortile uh, right around where they would have used to wash laundry and other things. And so very can poor you, gentry. Can you correct my pronunciation? Because I, even from the pulpit, I hear it pronounced Bellarmine. Okay, so uh, his name is properly Bellarmino. 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 And uh, what happens is, unlike other Italians who keep their O's, like, for example, Galileo uh-huh. uh, or, or others, um, or Lorenzo the Magnificent, etc. Yes, usually yes, he's not yes. called Lorenzo the Magnificent, he's called Lorenzo el Magnifico, Lawrence, uh, Lorenzo the Magnificent. Um, Bellarmine, because of his controversies and how powerful his argumentation was, it made a very strong impression on English divines in, in, the, in the Anglican Church, and they felt he was a very grave threat. Catholics also mm. referenced him uh, very frequently. His tracts were brought into England, sometimes in translation, and uh, used to argue with Protestants. Um, there was a ban on his works coming into England at all, ex- unless they came in in Latin and the only English divines would read them. Although that turned hazardous because uh, King James, the first chaplain, Dr. Anthony Carrier, read St. Robert Bellarmine's works, especially his, uh, his works of the papacy and the marks of the church. And he was convinced the Catholic church was a true church. But here he was with the greatest favor he could ever have, being a royal chaplain. So he gave it all up. Oh, boy. He said he was going to Germany under the excuse that he was going to take the waters at Spa and then uh, made his act of reunion with the Catholic Church. Okay. And, uh, or a union with the Catholic Church. And then um, wrote Bellarmine a letter thanking him. And Bellarmine just wrote back saying, no, no, no. Uh, you have nothing to thank me for. You made all the sacrifices. You gave a royal favor mm-hmm. in order to enter Christ, to, to take possession of Christ's true bride, the church. Mm-hmm, and so, mm-hmm. um, anyway, and so on and so forth. So, Bellarmine, for these reasons and others that we'll probably talk about here, was like a gargoyle in the English ecclesiastical landscape. So his name gets anglicized okay. rather early. Okay, okay. So the, so your your contention is just to set the so stage. So Bellarmine is acceptable. Bellarmine is, Bellarmine acceptable. is acceptable. Either one. I've heard both. Uh, I just know the Italian is Bellarmino. Got so, it. So whichever, it. you know, but if, as far as the anglicized version... Now Nobody I cares. do I, I want to I do want to get to the really interesting stuff. I mean, the fact of the matter is this 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 man almost became pope. This right. this man uh, almost defines what it means to be pope. And I know that you've talked on on other much larger, more uh, more glamorous podcasts about some of his positions on 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 the papacy and its legitimacy. Um, but but just so everyone is clear in in terms of uh, could could we, could you set the stage in terms of the historical. Uh, Trent is happening while he's born, essentially. Right, and and he comes of age in the wake of Trent. Mm-hmm. Trent has three periods. Uh, it's called by Pope Paul the Third as early as the 1530s. Mm-hmm. Charles V had asked for a council. The Emperor Charles V. And remember, Charles V owns most of Europe. Which I call him Carlos V. Right. Uh, yeah, family. if you want. Yeah, he's Carlos <laughs> Carlos Primos. Yes. Primos in Spain. Uh, yes. He's Charles the First in Spain. And he funds his abbey through, uh, as well as Lord of the Netherlands, uh, through Burgundy, Lord of Burgundy, mm-hmm. and he because he was the granddaughter. Oh, that's sorry. He would do that again. <laughs> he was the grandson of Queen Isabella and Ferdinand through Isabella's daughter, uh, uh, Juana, which is also called Juana la Loca because she went through fits of insanity. So she was passed over for the throne because she couldn't competently manage it, and so her son Carlos became. Who was already Prince of the Netherlands in Burgundy became now the King of Spain. 
And then he used the Aziz. He now is in possession of the Americas and this vast mm-hmm. bit of Spanish gold. Right. So he uses that to fund his election, which more or less was a foregone conclusion. But he still didn't have enough money. So he had to borrow money from the German banking houses like the Fuggers and people like that in order to fund his election because other people were running to fund to, his election to, to what? The, the Holy Roman Emperor. So, that, I, I, so there, there so was the an Holy election Roman, for that, huh? There, yes, the Holy Roman Empire was not an, a, a hereditary office. It could be. But it usually, I mean, if you, the, the, he had sons and he designated and they seemed to have enough power or uh, toritas, enough uh, prestige, mm-hmm. then it would be more or less a foregone conclusion that they would be elected. But they were electors. They, you well, see, yeah, the electorates yeah. of Saxony, the Palatinate of um, uh, Cologne, uh, Let's et take a quick side detour into that because I think, you know, I, I've, I've heard some people refer to it as the Holy Roman German Empire. Because it would because right. it was in the hands of, of German blood for so long, but here you mm-hmm. have a Spanish king mm-hmm. who is Holy Roman Emperor, um, but he was was he he had Habsburg blood, didn't he? Oh, he was a Habsburg, absolutely. And his his uh, grand his grandfather and his his father is Philip the Good. His yes. grandfather namesake is, of namesake uh, of the Philippines. Yes, right. And his grandfather is Maximilian I, who is the Holy Roman Emperor. And Maximilian I, mm-hmm. a very powerful Holy Roman Emperor, because he realized the potential of establishing semi-state-funded uh, armies. They're called Landsknechts, which literally translate out to foot knight, because they fought in armor like knights on horseback, but on foot. And they were uh, semi-independent cores of, of uh, knights based on the Swiss Confederacy model in the Spanish Tercio. And so they were established by a man named um, Martin von Frusberg, if I remember the name right, and he realized the potential of getting these cores of troops mm-hmm. funded and on your side. Mm-hmm. But the problem is that, that once they realized their own, they were extremely efficient soldiers. For example, in 1529, when the Turks attempted to take Vienna, the one thing that prevented them, because the Turks even blew up the wall with a mine, the one thing that prevented the Turks from taking the city in 1529 was the Landsknechts. But then again, the Landsknechts were their own. There were several different, all, all sorts of different ones, um, you know, under own, their own leadership with their own codes. And they would, they would contract as mercenaries and negotiate out to whatever. And if you couldn't pay up, uh, you might go riot and do your own thing. You might go serve the enemies of the prince that was formerly paying you, such as, say, the King of France, mm-hmm. Francois I at this time, mm-hmm. uh, might start paying Lansconex to fight on his side because Charles V didn't have enough money to pay his. Or again, most famously in 1527, the Lansconex and Charles's pay, which included about 10,000 Lutheran troops, there were two major cores of Lansconex that were Lutheran. And... Because uh, they could, they could be Catholic or they could be Lutheran, but anyway, so they they weren't their their pay went into arrears. Charles had sent them to warn Pope Clement the Seventh, hey, backing the French in the last war was not a good idea, okay? And so, just so you know, there's this army encamped on your borders. So you better switch sides quick. That was his intent. Mm. He forgot to pay them, and so the lands connect said, well, you know, let's just take Rome, and he committed all sorts of atrocities. They, they devastated the city. Which has it has a silver lining to it, apart from all the horrors they committed, which is that uh, the Ro- the people in Rome who were so addicted to the Renaissance, a lot of priests with concubines, yeah, right. um, not living a, a clerical life, um, cardinals and their their palaces and whatnot. Mm-hmm, now this mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It, it influences them 
to say, wow, we, we need a change. And it's right about four years, you know, five years later, the Jesuits roll in, speaking in their broken Italian, but, but, it, but they're just their example inflamed the people. There was also one guy there during the sack of Rome, uh, uh, you know, Cardinal Farnese. And Farnese was, was uh, formerly, you know, in, in the height, he was promoted by Alexander VI, and he lived in the whole Renaissance, he had mistresses, but then, you know, he got serious about the faith in the 15, you know, 18s, 1520s, and decided he was going to work to reform the church. And so he dismissed his mistresses, and although he still had you know, his grandchildren, that he would continue to kind of support through various careers in the church. And, you know, so so he was figuring, you know, he should be pope, but then um, Clement VII got in. Clement VII kind of toyed with reform, but wasn't really that serious. And he belatedly, for example, pronounces on Henry VIII's annulment that, that the marriage between Henry and Catherine was valid. Uh, but he dragged that out as long as possible, gave Henry false hopes, uh, kind of even precipitated Henry's behavior because it was so clear to Henry he was doing the classic papal tactic of delay, hope it all works out without me having to do anything. Yeah. Right? yeah. So anyway, so but uh, the sack of Rome happens, and Clement is hiding out in Castel Sant'Angelo, and uh, Cardinal Farnese is with him. And so Farnese has a deep distrust of Charles V. So he's the, he becomes Pope in 1533. And the first thing on his program is calling a council. Nobody wants it. Even Charles has kind of backed off from the idea that we want a council. And he wants to kind of solve the problem himself this, in Germany. But this would be the council in response to, to Luther. Mm-hmm. This would be the council to definitively Precisely. Uh, put, put down the, the Protestant revolution started by Luther and then, of course, exacerbated right. by Henry VIII in, in England. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's precisely it. So it takes a while, um, and then finally Charles agrees to it, but only if it will be held in German land since it's to be dealing with a German problem. But the Pope, oh, because at this time it's only a oh, that's right. Yeah, so, yeah. You, so he you, wants an ecumenical council, but sure. in German land. Well, you so always for, imagine, you always imagine that, like this wave of uh, of Protestantism that is started by Martin Luther just kind of spreads like a wildfire through all of Europe, because we're reading this history mm-hmm. from the point of view of yeah, eventually it is Protestantism is a problem everywhere. But it's mixed. But and at that time, it's right. a German problem. Right. So he says, let's most, go to Germany and put it for down example, before it spreads. For example, in Spain, you don't have Protestantism. And yeah. the reason why is you had great reformers like Cardinal Jimenez de Neros that had uh, leaps and strides reforming the church in Spain. Mm-hmm. So that when Julius II published the first bull in Indulgences, Jimenez looked at it and he ripped it up. He refused to have anything to do with it. And indulgences were never sold in Spain. Um, or again, uh, he founds a, a new university at Alcala, and he has them create the first polyglot Bible, which is a Bible that has uh, Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. It even has um, what they, in those days they called Syriac or Chaldean, which actually is Aramaic. Okay. And they would have those manuscripts as well with a Latin translation, all in these little margins. So it was incredibly useful, mm-hmm. even if you didn't know those languages, just for looking at the original. Sure. It was incredible work for scholars. Um, Jimenez, you know, patronized, you know, the arts, humanism, the reading of the fathers. He set up lectureships in scripture all over the country. They really led to Spain's golden age in terms of recovering the faith mm-hmm. and preserving mm-hmm. it so much so that you never saw the Reformation. It wasn't the Inquisition. A lot of people think, oh, it's the Spanish Inquisition. Protestants would get burned if they showed up in Spain. That wasn't it at all because you did have Spanish, you know, that, that 
read various opinions from Luther and whatnot, and then went abroad. You know, and but it wasn't on account of the Inquisition because what happened when the Inquisition would come in is people priests would say, "Okay, the Inquisition's coming here next week, folks." Nobody say anything. We don't want any trouble here. Come on. Yeah. And, yeah, and there, yeah. there's manuscripts of this. That I mean, yeah. the Inquisition itself, they they actually had a procedure that if somebody was accused of heresy, he would have to make a list of his enemies. And if any one of his enemies was on the accusing list, the list of accusers, even if there was substance to the, the claim, it, it would was be thrown out yeah. immediately. I mean, Conflict you, could, you couldn't get that today. Like that. Uh, <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> yeah, imagine if, uh, imagine if Hillary Clinton were brought before a court right. and she were presented with a list of her enemies and she could just say, well, Donald Trump is an enemy, and uh, oh, well, yes. uh, well, I guess it's thrown out. More importantly, if somebody's falsely accusing you of something before the you know the authorities that you did this and you did this and they launched this whole investigation mm-hmm. and then they've spent the money so they decide you're going to be guilty of something just because they spent mm-hmm. the money on it. And this happens all the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you drew up, well, hey, these people are my enemies. If they looked and said, oh, he's one of the, the, the people who reported this thing to us, they're not going to throw it out. They're going to go. The, the, the greatest justice system of the world is going to go gung-ho on this thing. Yeah, yeah. They might put even, you in jail for they nothing. They might even double down. So they will. So anyway. So, yeah. so, just, uh, so uh, we're in a period of time where the, the, the noble families of Europe do elect the Holy Roman Emperor. It is Carlos. Of, of the empire. Of the not empire. Not so much of Europe. Okay. Uh, and then you've got, so, so Carlos V. But you said, I think, I, th- I thought I heard you say that he both wanted a council and then at a certain point did not want a at council. At first he wanted an ecumenical council. Clement VII showed himself rather unwilling, mostly because the whole problem of ecumenical councils, it kind of goes back to the Western schism. What solved the, the, the problem, they, they tried, conciliarism became a theory because the popes had showed themselves recalcitrant in actually solving the problem themselves. So you have Benedict Thirteenth, Pedro de Luna on the one hand, and you've got um, at different times, uh, you know, Innocent the Seventh, and then you've got down to uh, Gregory the Twelfth, right? And they all sure. make these prom, and then you get a third line in there from Alex- anti-pope Alexander the Fifth, and Baldassare becomes anti-pope John the Twenty-Third. And Baldassare Cossa... Twenty-second. No, no, Twenty-third. Twenty-second was a legitimate pope. He was an Avignon pope. Okay. And uh, 23rd is, uh, it, this particular 23rd is an anti-pope. Baldassare uh, Costa, he's a former pirate, uh, soldier, mercenary, funded by, he decided he wanted a change of life that was a little less bloody and a little safer and uh, just as lucrative. And so he gets bankrolled by the Medici to go into church life. And he gets elected by the cardinals that follow Alexander V, uh, anti-pope Alexander V, to become okay. uh, uh, John the 23rd. And so when you he's say, the one that calls the Council of Constance. Actually. When you say conciliarism, you're 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 speaking the theory that the council is above the pope, right? Which is formally condemned at the Fifth Lateran Council, by the way. Um, so what? But but that that's later. So what mm-hmm. happens is that uh, because, the Council because of Constance ecum- ecumenical councils truly are extraordinary acts of mm-hmm. the church. We've they had are. we've had twenty for sure ecumenical right. councils, and then a 21st uh, council, which some people call an ecumenical council. Right. Uh, so th- it's I not like it... I still ha- call it an ecumenical council. But it's not whether, like it happens all the time, whatever. though, right? Like, is it, I right. mean, no, in 20 no, centuries, we've had... What know, they wanted at Constance was they wanted it to happen all the time. So Constance finally... Because they had a, uh, the, the Council of Pisa, which attempted to solve the problem 
and uh, the, the the popes, the the, the anti popes were recalcitrant and wouldn't solve it. Okay. So they that and that's how the, the you end up getting the election of uh, like Alexander V and stuff. Uh, Constance was called with the assistance of a very extraordinary Holy Roman Emperor Sigismund, um, and he, with the patronage of uh, he, he gave his patronage to John the Twenty Third, and he and so that that was the way the council started. And then they started acting various decrees, and then they they come to the solution that all the popes should resign, and they do, mm-hmm, except mm-hmm. for Pedro de Luna. First he resigns, and then he recants it, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and then he refuses later, uh, and, and he still claims till the end that he's the real pope. But, but at that time he's lost all his support, and everyone ignores him. So all the everyone you know is resigned, and they elect a new pope, Pope Martin V, and the entire church unites itself to Martin V. And so Martin, then Martin V is supposed to accept that he'll call a council every so many years. And they start doing this, actually, in all the conclaves in that time. Uh, when you get to um, Nicholas V, Eugene IV, Nicholas V, Calixtus III, the first Borgia Pope, who actually was a very good pope, by the way, even though he was a Borgia. Um, and others, not so much like his nephew, Rodrigo, who was Alexander VI. Um they all make these claims. We're going to call a council, mm-hmm. and we're going to within five years, and so and so. So Eugene the uh, so, so this Martin is, this the fifth, is long promised. Yes, it's long is, promised. And there's like an expectation, and they and it, so he starts at the Council of Basel, and then Eugene the fourth becomes Pope, who promises to continue the the Council of Basel, and so in Basel, Switzerland. So what mm-hmm. happened was now in Switzerland. So what happens at the Council of Basel is again the conciliar's theories that were not accepted at Constance by, by that Martin V did not accept at Constance are now floated again. Mm-hmm. You have a movement against the the popes in Rome. And this is really dangerous because the popes are trying to consolidate their authority in Italy. A lot of papal territory has been lost to petty warlords over the times they were living in Avignon and they're trying to get back. Yeah, right. And now you have a council saying that uh, you know even trying to depose Eugene the 4th, they even elect an anti-pope that eventually he does make his submission to the next pope Nicholas V. But and so and then finally they, they, the popes transfer the council to Ferrara and then to Florence in the in the name of that's where we'll receive the Greeks and the Greeks will come make their submission which they did um, and and that, that's another history. There's a great book on that which is not in print but you can find it in most libraries or probably online by Joseph Gill is an excellent historian. Uh, just on the Council of Florence, and he has another one, Pope Eugene the Fourth, Pope of Christian Unity. All very good documentary histories on those councils. If you read Latin, Martin Jugi, uh, J-U-G-I-E, who's French, um, his books on the procession of the Holy Spirit and the history of Orthodoxy, he talks in depth, again, from the primary sources, but you have to know Latin to read those. Um, I just want to elucidate one thing that you maybe have said in passing, and that is that an ecumenical council in times past, could have either been called by the Pope or by the Holy Roman Emperor. Right. Well, no. Because, what, I mean, what, so, the, the first... so John the Twenty Third calls the Council of Constance, and they meet the, the anti-Pope John the Twenty Third, And it was at the behest of Sigismund, the Emperor. So he's the one footing the bill. And that's mm-hmm. also in ancient times, too. The Popes called the Councils... And then the emperor um, and then the emperor it. underwrites it because yeah. it's in his interest, especially in the early church. It's in his interest because everyone's going to be arguing and fighting about these matters, uh, and then you could solve all the problems in the dissension by having the council. So you pay to get people there, and that's what happened. And like and in Nicaea, cheap. the first it's, people there yeah. are the papal legates, yeah. and likewise yeah. at Chalcedon. Yeah. Yeah. So why, for example, does the patriarch of Alexandria have the name Papas? 
It actually comes from St. Cyril of Alexandria because he was the official legate of the Pope at uh, the Council of Ephesus. And for that reason, he was given the title Pope, Papus, because he stood in place of the Pope at that council Mm -hmm. and related everything back to the Pope in Rome who ratified it and and, uh, Mm -hmm. settled Mm -hmm. it. And so... That uh, so that that's an you know and that happens you know the ancient church as well as in the medieval like at Trent the popes were never present directly at Trent they had legates there just as at the early councils right and the problem at Trent was the monarchies didn't want to cooperate for various reasons or another so at first Charles does and for various reasons of his own uh, Henry the Eighth is a, is a definitely afraid of the first period of the council because he's afraid the whole church and all Europe could line up against him sure. and bring an invasion against him. So he works at the time he was allied with the French. So he gets Francois the First, the King of France, to sorry also resist. So is that resist right? The council. Yeah, right. So the French are actually entirely so, useless so, in the so, whole saga until the third period when they're incredibly helpful. So by Trent, a sudden turn of events. So, for, so first of all, Bellarmine did not participate Mm -mm. in the council. So Bellarmine was born in 1542, while Paul III was struggling to get bishops uh, in to commit to going to Trent, the city that was in the Empress territory, but Mm -hmm. on the cusp. Today Mm -hmm. it's an Italian territory, but in those days it was an imperial territory. So getting there, um, and then he entered the Jesuits in 1560, and at that time the council's last period, after several breaks and intermissions, was just beginning. The council has three periods. As that first period, which lasts until 1549, you have the great interim. Pope Julius III comes in and starts it up again, uh, much against Charles's wishes. Mm-hmm. He was actually one of the legates of the first period of Trent, Cardinal de, uh, de, uh, de la Monte. And now he's Julius III, starts the council again. It gets his 13th and 14th sessions off and actually receives a delegation of Protestants who come to the count and address the council as well. Then it adjourns, and then uh, doesn't get anything else done, and uh, Julius III dies. Then you get Pope Paul the. Uh, well, first you get Pope Marcellus II, St. Robert Bellarmine's uncle. He dies, and then you have uh, Carafa, Cardinal Carafa, who was a reform cardinal involved in great orders like the Theatines and in reform movements in Italy. But he gotten very bitter in his time as a cardinal, especially uh-huh. looking at the corruption, and his personality was very temperamental, and he almost goes half mad. And so his zeal overtakes him. So he becomes Pope Paul the Fourth. And one of the, I mean, so he does good things and he does bad things. So one of the bad things is anyone who suspects of heresy just goes in jail. Like Cardinal Moroni, he almost completely stops the Counter Reformation in England because he hated Cardinal Poole oh, and he was boy. convinced that Cardinal Poole was a heretic, even though Cardinal Poole had made his submission to everything Trent had taught and declared that he believes nothing other than what the Catholic Church believes. And that's Can- a public profession of faith. But um, Carafa wouldn't believe it, so he wanted Poole sent back to Rome for a heresy trial, which Queen Mary wouldn't do and was willing to go back into schism over because she needed Poole for the work of bringing England back to the faith. So let me let me ask you about the shadow of Trent. Mm-hmm. Um, Trent happens, as you say, against the will of the Spanish crown, the French crown, the English crown. Right. Is it is it immediately accepted once it happens? Uh, you know, be, because today people right. look at Trent and they say it's so crystal clear. They spoke with such precision. <laughs> it wasn't seen that way. Okay, they that's... did speak with precision, by the way. Yes, uh, the reform decrees are a mix of very good and and stuff for the lawyers. You know, um, mm-hmm. and 
And that's why one of the things that is, you know, is getting to with Paul IV, he, he refused to call the council back into session because he said there's easier ways to reform things. And this one thing he was definitely right about, the apostolic datary, the dataria, from the Latin word dare, datus, to give. Yep. Right. So datus, dataria, comes out of that, uh, the giving of privileges and exemptions from all the different canon laws that would make you do your job as a bishop or as a benefice holder or what have you. So Paul IV reformed that so that nobody could get any permissions whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, con- con- uh, clergy with concubines were sent to be galley slaves. Uh, bishops hanging around the city looking for favors uh, were warned they, they would share a very similar fate if they didn't get back to their dioceses. So all of these things were extremely positive, mixed in, unfortunately, with a negative in, in Paul IV that uh, turned the whole populace against him. So when he died, they were ripping down his statues and everything. Uh, they, there was even a picture of... Um, uh, like a cartoon of the day, it was showed with Romanes in Romanesco, where uh, Saint Peter is bowing before Paul the Fourth, begging for forgiveness for having uh, violated some some arbitrary papal dicta. <laughs> okay, <laughs> and so, but anyway, uh, he dies, and then you get Pius the Fourth, and Pius the Fourth is like, all right, we got to get Trent back on its feet. Yeah, and now you have the problem. Well. Should those first two periods be considered part of the council? Mm-hmm. That was like 10 years ago at this point. This is the 1560s. And the, uh, Charles V has died in the meantime, and he's abdicated his realm, so his sister, Mary of Hungary, is now ruling the Netherlands. Philip II is king of Spain, and his nephew Ferdinand is the Holy Roman Emperor. And, and then various others, you know, with the, his claims in Italy and whatnot. So Philip II and Ferdinand both believe that the first periods, the first two periods of Trent should be just consigned to the dustbin. Start all over again. Oh, boy. Pretend it all never happened. This is not the information yeah. age, right? No, like it's, it's not. I mean, you, you, this is a major setback if you throw it all out. So the two people that, that square that circle are St. Charles Borromeo and St. Peter Canisius. And so they meet both, uh, Borromeo and Canisius meet with Ferdinand II. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, Canisius uh, through you know and others meet with Philip II and also Melchior Cano, uh, Domingo del Soto and other other great theologians in Spain and they all convince him to accept those first periods of Trent and make the whole council one seamless thing, just divide it up into these periods and so they they follow it and then an unexpected turn of events happened, so now the French so you have Francois the first this great Renaissance humanist. Prince, the Count of Angoulême, who becomes king after Louis XIII dies in old age, has, brings unity to a lot of the French nobles, right? And and he has his policy to undo whatever the empire is doing because he's surrounded by Habsburg lands on every side. That's why he doesn't want Trent. And mm. he, uh, so Francois, you know, sets this policy. His son, um, Henri II, follows that same policy. And Henri is then the only thing, he's even talking schism a la Henry VIII and all these sorts of, even though he's fighting uh, Edward VI at the time. And the only thing that comes uh, to stop him is the, the Duke of Guise, who's the, also the Cardinal Duke of Lorraine. And he's the one who keeps, he's a, he's a, he's a noble but he, unlike his family, which had mostly used and abused the church for centuries, this Cardinal de Guise was a very beloved son of the church, very devoted to the church and the papacy, and he had worked tirelessly to make sure Henri II stayed in union with the church. So now this third period of Trent comes along, and 
he is sent with the delegation to to be a part of it. And he actually becomes a major force healing a lot of the divisions in the council. You have questions that almost break the council in this period over clandestine marriage, over Episcopal residence, mm. over even reforms over things such as church music and art. Right there, There's dissension between Spanish Sure. Italians sure. and the imperial bishops and, and, and even the French, but it's the Cardinal Duke of uh, Lorraine that's always in the midst, along with Charles Borromeo from the Italian side, working, conciliating, and getting everyone onto the page of church unity and the good of the church in all these matters. And that's one of the reasons why Borromeo, uh, in spite of some of the legendary character of this, um, but he did, in fact, commission from Palestrina a mass to show the, the basically what what the council had in mind for church music, and that's the the, the Missa Pape Marcelli, uh, which is a very famous piece. You can Google that on YouTube. I didn't know that was um, Borromeo. Yeah, and so Borromeo, you know, basically commissioned that wow. of Palestrina. Uh, now, there's various legends. He tried to throw. He was threatened to throw Palestrina in jail if he wouldn't do it. Uh, <laughs> another, he's pleading on his hands and knees for Palestrina to do it. In fact, he paid Palestrina a contract to to produce something to be performed before the council to give the direction for what the council should should be basically pointing to in, in church music and so on and so forth. So, okay. so that's in, in long and the short of, of how Trent, and then finally its sessions are concluded and promulgated formally by Pope Pius IV, and in its reform legislation then it was demanded to become law. Now here's the fun part. So Philip II distinguishes himself by as a son of the church because he's also planning to break diplomatic relationships with the papacy. Because in politics, he wants to show himself the enemy of the Pope, but in religion, his true son. So he implements all of Trent so that in religion, you know, because all the other monarchs are dragging their feet on it. And he implements all of Trent in Spain. So what this means is that, uh, and then also Quo Primum, too, is another one where he implements that and it goes against the grain of a lot of interests in Spain. So he starts sending uh, royal troops to turn monks out of monasteries that wouldn't use the Roman Rite, mm -hmm. turn monks out of monasteries that wouldn't reform according to Trent's decrees on benefices and other things. And, uh, and an yet, observer and compares it to Henry VIII's England with the suppression of the monasteries. Oh my god. That's gosh. what they compare it to because of this scene of people resisting oh the reform decrees of Trent. In wow. France, Marie de Medici, uh, because her... her um, she had taken over as queen regent for Henri III, uh, she refuses to implement it all. She does, and so a lot of the, the things that benefices on uh, canon law changes, uh, even Episcopal residence in, in, in Quo Primum, she refuses to implement it. So the bull is never published in France. And Quo Primum is not law in France, neither is anything else, until after the French Revolution. <laughs> because then the bishops during that period they get part of the patriotic church they've tasted schism Napoleon offers to give them the Gallican church They're like no, no 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 we already tasted schism we're going to be truly Roman Catholic bishops now mm -hmm. and uh, it just ticks off Napoleon but he, there's nothing he can do about it at the time because he's, he's too uh, too busy getting ready for his war with Russia mm -hmm. and then uh, after the, the wars the Napoleonic wars the French church institutes all of Tridentine legislation that it had been dragging its feet on for 250 years. <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> Which actually leads to oops, leads to a, a renaissance of Catholic life in France during the 19th century, by the way. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, but then again, I mean, which, which the revolution had wiped away the older structure of the ancien regime. Just so. touch, touch us briefly in the, the, the Catholic renaissance in France touches briefly upon... 
uh, my last live stream where I was talking about the devotion to the Holy Face, which was solemnly professed in the city of Tours. It was ratified by Pope Leo the Thirteenth. Um, so that that's 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 interesting. It's all connected. Uh, when we when we, we haven't come, said a word about Bellarmine practically. Yeah. When we come back, actually, we we will. So now that we've established, we've set the playing field. When we come back after this short break, we are going to dive into now enter Robert Bellarmine in the long shadow of the Council of Trent. So uh, we have analyzed a lot of medieval history. We understand the Council of Trent, the long shadow that it casts. As with any council, including the most recent, the 21st Ecumenical Council, so-called, uh, there it, it takes a long time for people to accept it, to understand it, to either, uh, you know, or, or for it to be amended or overturned, which has happened right. in the history of the church. Uh, or for, I don't know that any... Ecumenical council has ever been that, that was truly ecumenical has ever been properly overturned. I do know there have been ecumenical councils that basically have been failed. Nothing burger has failed councils Forgotten or whatever. Like the Council of Vienne, First Council of Lyon, uh, First Council of the Lateran. Mm-hmm. Who knows? Who cares? What does that mean for any of our lives? Nothing. And I'm firmly convinced the 21st will take its place among them as a council that basically nothing attempted to address mm-hmm. the world in a certain age to strengthen the church failed utterly and is just mm-hmm. regarded mm-hmm. as such by the history in of every church. in every single measurable variable uh but enter mm-hmm. enter saint robert bellarmine right. who who lives in this long shadow of trent which again we look back from our point of view and we say oh trent was like the high point of the church it's mm-hmm. so clear it's so crystal clear we love everything it says this really addressed protestantism right. Uh, that's that's not how it was seen back then, and he, and and the task fell to him, uh, in part. Among others, but yeah, in part, mm-hmm. uh, to to uh, defend this council. So right away, like when the first sessions came to pass, John Calvin wrote a book, the antidote to the Council of Trent, essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, same. Uh, then there is also uh, Martin Chemnitz who writes his book, The Examination of the Council of Trent. After the entire thing is done, he's a Lutheran. Okay. Well, he pillages a number of arguments from Calvin. 
Uh, as Bellarmine shows in Bellarmine's own treatises, the controversies, uh, anything dealing with the sacraments and justification where he brings Chemnitz in, basically takes Chemnitz to the woodshed. It shows how the guy barely understands what Trent is even saying sometimes. And even when he does, he's using really bad impostures or poor argumentation. Mm. Although it's important to notice that when you read early Protestants like Luther, like Calvin, um, and like these figures like Chemnitz, Bullinger, Beza, um, and so on and so forth, they're quoting the fathers. They're quoting medievals. They're quoting, you know, Aquinas even. Uh, they're quoting people you would never expect them to quote because yeah. they're also aware of the tradition. Sometimes they think they're restoring an earlier medieval tradition. Correct. You know, and so Correct. on and so forth. They're not like your American fundamentalist Baptist Bible that we might think are you know, Bible thumping Baptists that mm-hmm. never read the fathers, think the church started with Jesus and didn't appear again until Martin Luther type of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. You know, that, that's not the Protestants that Bellarmine, those are not the Protestants that Bellarmine dealt with. Bellarmine dealt with very erudite men for the most part. And that's why it's interesting, uh, like apologetics, I talked about this when I was at EWTN with Father Mitch Pacwa, and he actually raised the point that apologetics in that period uh, was a snake pit. Uh, controversial literature was always full of personal insults, ad hominem, in its true sense, mm-hmm. uh, just mm-hmm. bad argumentation, attacks, bad language. Uh, you look at Thomas More's response to Luther, for instance, um, and, and things of this sort. And Bellarmine stands above all of that. So does St. Peter Canisius, so do you know a handful of others. But Bellarmine really stands above all that. His worst fault, according to some commenters, is that he'll say, he's very quick to say Calvin lies, or Chemnitz lies, or whoever. And what, when you look at the manner of discourse and rhetoric in those times, it was actually considered more charitable to say that somebody lied than to say he was a bad scholar. Because if he lied, he has actually has the cunning to go through things and do scholarly work in order to perpetuate the lie. Whereas if you're <laughs> oh, so saying like a, that, like a if you're saying he's a bad scholar, yeah. he's an idiot. You know? <laughs> so it was okay. actually, and that's one of the reasons why wow. so frequently you'll find that Bellarmine saying this is an impudent lie. But then later on, you're finding that it's 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 rather a question that they failed to properly consider what the church says. It's you know it basically it, it, it's what Bellarmine's giving them. Yeah, like you said, this backhanded compliment rather than mm-hmm. saying they're so stupid they couldn't get it right. <laughs> okay, okay. <laughs> Although he does reserve that for a few people, but the way in which he does it is simply to show their own words and show and and then the reader himself can see how stupid they are. And then uh, <laughs> and now he, he engages in a wide, wide, diverse array of topics. Yes. Right. I mean, and 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 he and he is considered to be an expert in many of those topics mm-hmm. that he takes on. How is this possible? Uh, he has essentially a photographic memory. He had said to his good friend, who's a Cretan a Jesuit from Crete, Ioannis uh, Diamond, that um he had he could memorize a sermon of about an hour's length by reading it once. So when he was studying theology at Padua, he had managed and basically he was committing many of the church fathers to memory. Likewise in Leuven, uh, when he was sent to Leuven for seven years, and uh, 1572 to 1579, he was in Leuven and he was studying there. And uh, actually, no, it was a little earlier than that. Sorry, it was about 1570, 1577, and. So while he's there, not only that, but Leuven is like the glass Catholic outpost in Belgium, where in the Spanish Netherlands, where you have the Protestants on the other side, the mm-hmm. Dutch Protestants. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Although most of the Dutch Republic is actually Catholic, the elite are all Protestants. And you have a number of Protestants, you know, congregating in those areas. And sometimes they're over in Leuven, too. 
and this is where Bellarmine had his very first exposure to Protestantism, even to discourse of Protestants themselves. And so he got permission, because you had to get permission in those days because of censorship, to read the Protestants' works, particularly, you know, Luther, That's Calvin, right. uh, the Calvin's Institutes, Luther would be like on the Bab- Babylonian captivity, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, on the uh, the slave will and the freedom of a Christian man, on the abolition of mass. Uh, those are the works of Luther, and you know, all these other figures that you would have that you had to deal with X, Y, and Z. So, he, and he would read these, and he, and again, his photographic memory comes in where he learns, almost memorizes verbatim what they said, so that um, but but there's another thing that shows uh, his capacity for there's two other things okay. shows capacity for study. So one is languages, obviously, well, ancient languages anyway, because uh, he, he was never able to learn French. He was very unadept to it. But when it came to ancient languages, so for example, I mean Latin, he was brilliant at from an early age. Mm-hmm. Uh, Greek, he was so when he was a Je- young Jesuit, he was sent. He was not in orders, and he was sent preaching through Florence and whatnot. Then eventually they ordered him to go found, you know, to go take up his post teaching in, in a school in uh, Piedmont. So Piedmont is northwestern Italy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in that region, around the areas like Genoa and whatnot, which is a city state in that region. And so his job was to take up the school there. And then when he gets there, he discovers, to his surprise, that he's supposed to lecture on Demosthenes. Demosthenes is an ancient Greek order, and he's supposed to do it in Greek. And so he had to write back to his superiors saying, um, I know the Greek alphabet, but that's about it. Mm-hmm. And they said, oh, well, you'll manage. So he starts the class saying, now, before we get into all the, the complexities and difficult sayings of Demosthenes, let's review all the grammar you were supposed to learn last year. And so then he's basically teaching them <laughs> the grammar that he, that he was learning the night before. So, mm-hmm. And as it is, he, he was the porter. He was in charge of giving uh, conferences to his lay brethren. He was in charge of a whole number of things. So he had to squeeze out, as well as the school, so he had to squeeze out this scant amount of time in order to learn Greek. And so he's learning basically ahead of the students what he's going to teach the next day. But within two weeks, he had become a master of the language and was not only uh, giving lectures on Demosthenes, he was also dealing with Isocrates. And today, if you're a Greek professor... Socrates is one of the most very difficult people in order to like to teach the. And this guy couldn't learn French. Now he could learn French, (laughs) (laughs) which I feel for him. I can't learn it either. I I can read it decently, but I can't speak it to save my life. All right, all right. Um, But anyway, the pronunciation. Same thing in Louvain with Hebrew. Okay, so in Louvain, uh, he he learned Hebrew. He taught him. Now Hebrew was a much more difficult thing than Greek. Greek had grammars. It had a a course of explanations. You could Mm -hmm. find all the answers you wanted. Hebrew was shrouded in complicated texts like Metabolus' Rules for Rabbis, the Lecture Notes of Reuclin, all these things. You couldn't just find a clear answer to your question. You actually had to read all of it. So Bellarmine read all of the material that was out there on Hebrew Mm -hmm. and then had devised his own system and produced his own grammar. And that grammar was actually the standard grammar for 200 years in Hebrew. There, there's certain areas where, in terms of the actual study of the language, he was an, he was an amateur Hebraist, but he's like one of those guys, what an amateur, because he got so many things right. Okay. And uh, you get certain things wrong, like Hebrew is the oldest language from the beginning of the world. That was an idea they had back then. That's actually not true, linguistically speaking. But they, that, that was a lot. Lapide repeats that same thing, you know, and he was fluent in Hebrew also. I, I actually, that was kind of the standard I idea. I thought that as well. So I, mm-hmm. why, why haven't... The, 
there's no grammar book that the Jews amongst, were, were uh, propagating? No. If they did, it was amongst themselves because the Jews spoke, I mean, the, the Jews in Europe spoke Yiddish in the elite uh-huh. new Hebrew. Okay. And Hebrew was a dead language as it was even in the time of Christ. Uh, since the time of the Babylonian exile, and the, and the people spoke the common language of the Persian Empire, which was Aramaic. Mm-hmm. And so uh, so they had various rules that they passed out amongst themselves. So the Dominicans had learned Hebrew in the 13th century, but they had not left behind any grammar or textbook, and that, that study fell off among them. So as you get to the 16th, it's it's falling to like Reuchlin, who was a former, who was a Jewish convert to Catholicism, Metabolis, and, and, and then you get into the rabbis themselves and the Talmud and things. Uh, you had some of sections of that rendered into Latin. You think it's a Kabbalah rendered into Latin. They give explanation on Jewish words and things like that. So you have all of these sources you have to sort through. And Bellarmine did that and masterfully systematized it into, into something that would work mm-hmm. for 200 years. And he used to boast that it is spend a week with him learning the institutions of Hebrew grammar and you'll be able to read the the Old Testament with nothing more than the aid of a Hebrew you know, dictionary. Wow. And people took him up on it, and they found that it was exactly so. And then within a few months of doing this, they were able, you know, because it's so familiar, it helps them memorize the vocab. They learned Hebrew through Bellarmine. So he had that photographic memory. So Bellarmine takes on this other court, this other task. He writes this book, uh, De Libris Ecclesi- uh, De Scriptoribus Ecclesiastes, that's the title of it, uh, on the ecclesiastical writers. And so he takes as his aim uh, writers from about, you know 1500 BC to 1500 AD, and so the person who would undertake that kind of work is either you know a, a madman yeah. or a genius. And yeah. we know Bellarmine was the latter, and he engages in text criticism, right? Something that a lot of people think only came about like recently. No, they were doing it in the 16th century and doing it very well, I might add. Mm. Um, and he's examining the arguments for and against the authenticity of this writer and that writer. And, you know, there's a few places where he was wrong. And uh, like Dionysus, the Areopagite, almost all scholars hold he was not the same guy that St. Paul had evangelized, uh, whoever the, those writings are attributed to, like the ecclesiastical hierarchy and whatnot. But on the other hand, there were others that he got completely right. So and that had been vindicated by modern scholarship. So that's, it's one of those very interesting things where, uh, you know, he does this work and it's a tremendous work. And so whenever he took something on, mm. he, you know, he, he had the genius to master the subject and to, to carry it through. So what happens in his writings of the Protestants is that he has all this stuff now prepared. The text criticism in this work for, you know, on the, on the Ecclesiastical writers, he'd memorized the Bible. He had, there actually used to be a Bible in Louvain. They only have uh, some facsimile pages of certain parts of it, where a uh, Louvain Bible, where Bellarmine had actually annotated on every single page, everything, you know, on all the, the sections of the scripture. And when he quotes it, he quotes it as someone who understands this kind of integrally to his subject because he, the, the verse is already in his head. He doesn't have to go look it up somewhere. You know, he has that more or less memorized. And also so many of the writings, the fathers and the Protestants, what happens, so he gets, um, he, come, he gets very ill around 1577. He gets very sick. And they realize that because, you know, wherever he is, he's, you know, he, He's joyfulness, uh, saintly, holy, as well as brilliant. He's the mover of conversation. He'd basically founded the whole school of Jesuit theology at Louvain. Um, and now, you know, but he had fallen terribly ill, and they want to remove him. The Jesuits want to remove him back to Italy mm-hmm. as the thought of his native heir might help him, which actually turns out to be the case. He does recover. Bellarmine, is, his health is always fragile. 
he's one of those characters. It's it's never so broken, but he's never completely healthy. He's always mm-hmm. suffering from something. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting in the canonization documents. One ingenious um, promoter general had gone through and made a table of all the times Bellarmine was reported to be sick and all of his accomplishments in the very same period. Hmm. It's a really impressive chart of what he accomplished while he was sick, yeah, uh, how, but how, reported how by us, his superiors. How many of us wake up with a headache or some pain or some chronic illness or whatever, and we yeah. underperform at our oh, at life, you know? Absolutely. Like, <laughs> some, there's certain types of headaches I can power through. There's others. I can't get <laughs> right, right. And uh, Bellarmine went through all. Although sometimes though, he got the one idea. According to his autobiography, he says he had the idea to ask God uh, for more suffering, so he asked for a toothache, and then he got one. And then he quickly he asked God to take it back. He realized it wasn't suited for him, <laughs> yeah. and God took it right away. <laughs> oh boy! Oh boy! So there's some things that were just the straw that broke the camel's back. But anyway, now his masterpiece, uh, I guess, is is as as many historians would say. I don't know what you would say. Uh, the controversies, um, and 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 under Queen Elizabeth, who uh, in in Elizabethan times, it was uh, it was a sentence of death mm-hmm. to possess this book by Robert Bellarmine. Uh, the Elizabethan regime had a strict uh, re- uh, censorship, strict censorship laws. Okay, any papistical books. Uh, any office, sort. The office, yep. uh, the, the divine liturgy, office, yeah. um, you know, the, the, rubric, the rubrics tracks, of mass. Even a pamphlet, right, yeah. was enough to give you a death sentence. Let alone a, um, you know, a, a an accoutrement to holy mass, mm-hmm. right? right? Oh, you, especially, it, um, it, well, you wouldn't get put to death necessarily for that, but that would mean they would search all your possessions, property, to try to find a priest because if you got accoutrements for holy mass, mm, there's probably, probably a priest a, nearby, a priest and all your, right, your friends. Right, right, right. And, Richard Topcliffe and the whole the whole regime comes in instead of the priest hunters and whatnot. The manner in which she would put you to death too is pretty gruesome. I mean, yes. being drawn and quartered, not instead so fun. Of burned at the stake, which Elizabeth's regime did for witches and certain nonconforming Protestants, mm-hmm. um, Unitarians, and such, was not applied to Catholics. And the, instead, the traitor's death was applied to Catholics. And the reason was they wanted to. The, the Elizabethan regime was very aware. Of the you know how Catholics would use religious persecution. It's actually very similar to what Henry VIII does with Thomas More and St. John Fisher mm-hmm. and Thomas Abel and the Cartusians and what you add on the list. It was because they wanted to give the idea that these men were traitors to the crown. So they're redefining your classical notions of treason. Right. Similar thing under Elizabeth. They don't want to give the idea, they, they don't want to publicly proclaim religious prose, uh, persecution. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And they don't want Catholics to take, you know, hope Say, from, oh, this is a martyr. Exactly. They yeah. want to say, no, this is a traitor to the crown because yeah. he did X, even though his treason was basically thought crime, mm. down to it, um, and his profession of religion. And even before, and so some, a lot of times in your history books you find, oh, it was reaction to the Spanish Armada that made, you know, it, in Pius V's excommunication of Elizabeth that made matters so bad. Now, it's true that Pius V's excommunication was ill-thought in terms of the consequences, and it did bring suffering for Catholics. But the death penalty for priests was already enforced prior to uh, Regnans and Excelsis and the Spanish Armada. The uh, the, the laws, you know, all, all the forbidding priests or any English Englishmen who had become a priest abroad 
ordering him that he needs to return mm. and uh, declare himself and, and, and swear the royal supremacy and, and deny the authority of the Pope. And if he doesn't do these things, within 30 days he'll be put to death. Mm. That was all in the 1550s. This is all bef- long before Ragnar and Chelsea's yeah. and the Spanish Armada. Well, and the penal and times so- continued on for hundreds mm-hmm. of years, even even beyond that. I mean, And it applied to her successors as well. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it's not just a matter of Pius right. V. Uh, excommunicating yeah. her. I mean, in terms of locally and specifically, that did bring more consequences, but that wasn't the cause. It was rather an aggravation of a problem already present. But there were more and some than... of his political and dynastic. You have Mary Queen of Scots, who was a modest Catholic in yep. Scotland, yep. but a very devout Catholic in England because she she saw the base of it disaffected English Catholics were about fifty five percent of the country that would support her for the crown, and she knew she had a better claim to the throne than Elizabeth herself did. Mm-hmm. So Eliz- so Mary, Queen of Scots's presence in England after she is more or less, uh, she has this revolution against her in Scotland, mm-hmm. they take her son, and she's <clears throat> seeking refuge. Her very presence in the country inspires several different re- risings and revolutions against Elizabeth. Sure, if you and, and I, so, if you and I were alive in Elizabethan mm-hmm. times, we would have revolted in favor of Mary, Queen of Scots. Right. Although... Most Catholics didn't. Most Catholics went along to get along. And those who did, it was rather a discoordinated and, uh, you know, not not very well put together. Like the Babington plot, for example. Babington goes to uh, the Duke of Alva in, in, the, in the Spanish Netherlands and says, oh, we got this great idea to overthrow Elizabeth. And he's listening. Thank you. Thank you. And then he writes back to the king. This guy's an idiot. He doesn't understand how these things actually work. Uh-huh. It's one thing to say these troops will rise and these troops will rise, but how do you actually coordinate that? And Alva, as a military man, sensed the very weak point in this and many other plots, is that just because you say you'll get X number of men to rise doesn't mean they'll actually rise. And it uh, doesn't mean you have the means to get them to do so. And that's the other problem. Okay. So, But anyway, so back to Bellarmine. So this but, is but, why... <clears throat> his book, The Controversies, though. Right. Uh, I mean... This really stoked a lot of mm-hmm. a lot of heat. I mean, a lot of people. It, what we would say in the modern sense is they tried to cancel him. More than two hundred mm-hmm. books were written to try to refute more his Protestants work. read the controversies than Catholics in its first printing. The and, and also many were because in those days too, the way you bought books is you either there were booksellers catalogs didn't exist. Obviously, not websites and the rest. So you had to go to book fairs, mm. and the booksellers would all be there with their copies, and you would buy out. So the very first run, which came from Engelstadt in 1588, all bought out. <laughs> and the majority were actually Protestants, seeing what the latest uh, papistical attack of Antichrist was on the yeah. Reformed religion, yeah. as it were. So <clears throat> that, that's part of what, what is going on. So there, the genesis of the controversies is this. Bellarmine arrives back in Rome, okay. and he has, and so his superiors order him to take up in the Roman College the chair of controversial theology, which is essentially what today we call apologetics. Controversial theology was taken up by other even very great theological minds like Cardinal Toledo, who was the mm-hmm. very first Jesuit cardinal. Um, other theologians had taken it up, and it failed because they, they couldn't make it work, principally because they didn't have the erudition and the fathers. So Bellarmine gets up, and he just takes a heading, Pope. Scripture, tradition, sacraments, whatever. And here's what the Protestants teach. And because he had read so many of the works of the Protestants, in his photographic memory had put it up here, he had accurate knowledge of what the Protestants had actually
actually taught. Because some manuals, some some writings against the Protestants mm-hmm. actually <coughs> didn't even touch their actual yeah, arguments. Straw, straw men, or yep. yeah, 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 right. Because the person either had, had the erudition or even the access sometimes because of censorship rules again, because those worked in the papacy. Well, as yeah, because well. you had to ask Except you didn't get permission the death to read this stuff. Yeah, you just didn't get the death penalty. You might get <coughs> a pilgrimage or mm-hmm. something like that, mm-hmm. or, mm-hmm. Or, or various penances of sorts. Um, you know, not rather you know, for having Protestant works, but uh, nevertheless, without permission, and even with permission, sometimes it's hard to get. To the Jesuits are actually writing uh, to to some of their confreres to when they they bring in these various Protestant books to pack them steeply under the straw so the papal censors don't find them. That way, they can make their way to Cardinal Bellarmine uh, or to, say, to, to Father Bellarmine at the time. Wow! And so, uh, because wow. they they couldn't always get permission to get these things in, oh, even my. if it was for Bellarmine's use to write against them. So, but nevertheless. So he would take all these propositions, and then he would, to, in response, what Scripture and the fathers had to say. And this was wildly popular. It was incredibly, it was standing room only classroom, an immediate success. It was attended by bishops as well, mm-hmm. by cardinals, mm-hmm. and, and they were all flabbergasted with it. So, and then they said to Pope Gregory the Thirteenth, "Hey, this guy should write a book." And then Gregory the Thirteenth goes to the Jesuit superior Claudio Aquaviva, "Hey, this Father Bellarmine of yours, he should write a book." And next thing you know, Aquaviva orders Bellarmine to write the book. Okay. And that's what the controversies are, which was a, a laborious task because you got to remember in those times, you had to write it all out and yep. write it out legibly. And Bellarmine's handwriting is very spidery and very complicated. And you can see when he takes the time to write it out more legibly. When he's writing for his use versus when he's writing for others' eyes. And I've seen that in manuscript. Uh, several letters I've seen that he wrote to, say, Pope Clement VIII are written in a very diplomatic cursive, easy to read if you learn cursive in school, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, it might, you know, a few things you got to just get used to. Then uh, his own handwriting for his own use, which is very small, spidery, and difficult, but he would recognize it when he saw it. So, <clears throat> um, you know, so you have that element. So he would have to take the time to write it out very carefully so the printers could read it. Printers have their movable type. They have to set it. And actually, the, the printing in that period works, I mean, if you see a printing press in that time period is just like a wine press. In fact, it's the exact same technology. And what happens is that you get your movable type, you have to put it in backwards, mm-hmm. you have your capital letters on the upper case, and you have your small letters on the lower case, and that's how we get those terms. Uppercase, upper case, and lower cases from where the printers put the letters to take to fill in their movement. So they'd fill a page, and then they'd splotch it with these sponges of ink, all over or the engravings or whatever on both sides of the plate <clears throat> and then they would crank or someone else would crank the wood the, the, the press it would come down press uh, <clears throat> you know the, the page itself on the type and then it would lift up and you have your page and then you would take it off hang it to dry do it again mm-hmm. and you would keep doing this until you had had you know all the, the pages for whatever your run was 100 copies 500 copies 1000 copies so it might take you six months. It's all being done by hand. Pages are then organized, sewn, and whatnot. So that's what the process entailed in that day. Bellarmine's only end of it was to organize it, annotate it, and uh, have it and carefully review it before sending it to the printers. And even then, the printers still make errors. Mm-hmm. Of course, you're laying all the type backwards. You're going to make an error somewhere here and there. Miss a word, forget a word. And so, the, so Bellarmine actually, there's subsequent editions. That's why I use a 1721 edition which uh, made use of all corrections that Bellarmine had made in his own hand when they produced that edition. And they even to go to the extra mile of putting in the scripture verses, which Bellarmine didn't use because he knew the Bible by heart. <laughs> older Bible that had chapters and not verses. Um, but anyway, so that's so on the subjects, it's basically like this. So he does scripture mm-hmm. and tradition. And so is scripture a judge of controversies? 
well, no, because Scripture requires a human interpreter. And then there's other questions about Scripture and other things, what its actual authority is, but that's the basic thrust. Then you get to Christology. Well, is Christ the judge of controversies? Yes, except that he's no longer the visible head on earth since his ascension. And so, so how exactly does Christ judge controversies of faith? And that leads to the third book in that original set, the Pope. The mm-hmm. papacy mm-hmm. is the beings of the visible head, Christ's vicar. So proving that there is a papal monarchy, Christ conferred this papal monarchy on Peter. Peter had successors, and these successors have the right to settle all controversies of law. The Pope and, is not the Antichrist. The Pope has the authority to teach in faith and morals and is infallible in so doing. And what the Pope's actual temporal authority is, the fifth and smallest book, also the one that got him the most trouble in his life. Well, and so this third part uh, about the papacy was both controversial when he wrote it, and you could say it's fairly controversial even today. You can, although for entirely different reasons. So the in those days, Bellman's writings, for example, on what would happen in, 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 on the Roman Pontiff Book 2, Chapter 30, on it, if a pope should become a heretic, didn't cause any stir, nobody really cared. Yeah. It was one of these obiter dicta philosophical quandaries and there were various opinions mm. on it and Bellarmine didn't summarize them. Right? Yeah. It's a thought experiment. Bellarmine didn't think it could ever happen mm-hmm. and so he just summarized what those opinion what would happen. So he gives his own opinion. Uh-huh. It's not going to happen. Uh-huh. But let's say it did. What's going <laughs> right. to happen then? Right, right, right. So then he gives a second opinion and I, I have to tell you if you want to see more on that I, I said really all I ever need to say on it in an interview I did with Dr. Taylor Marshall sure. where I read directly from that 1721 text and translated it right there and so so it could be understood correctly for everybody. Because people but, are looking to Bellarmine even today in mm-hmm. 2020 and they're saying uh, if if the whole and I'm not saying that this is actually happening, but if the Holy Father does fall into heresy, um, does he is he de facto um, not the Pope anymore, or does it require and we won't an, know. A, an active uh, right. participation of the bishops to 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 rule on that and right. then to remove him or whatever? And and that's not going to happen until after we're dead. And I anyway. hold that we won't know. Yeah. Until the church adduces the principles of the theologians into praxis. And that's always what happens, whether that happens at an ecumenical council, yeah. where the church confirms the opinions of theologians one way or the other, right. or whether the church will simply do it <clears throat> and confirm the opinions, much like at uh, Lateran, um, you know, the council, various councils where they um, took theologians' opinions, for example, on the authority of the pope over a council. Uh, in Lateran Five, I'm sorry, where they condemn conciliarism, mm-hmm. <clears throat> and you have, uh, you know, and they look at the practical reality. What did the Church adduce into practice? Uh, Martin V confirms certain things out of Constance, but not others. And so Constance Bellarmine actually labels Constance a partly approved and partly condemned council, because there are certain parts of it that Martin V refused to uphold once he was elected. So the council obviously doesn't have authority over the Pope, and then that's confirmed at Lateran Five. So then it's the same thing in this question of the heretical Pope. Vatican I had the chance to deal with the question, and they punted. They just didn't want to deal with it. Well, that was going to be so. my question, is whether or not Vatican I, which defined the, the papal infallibility mm-hmm. uh, right. dogma, whether or not they, they took up that, that particular issue. They didn't feel it was opportune to deal with it, so they essentially punted, okay. and uh, more or less. So <clears throat> in the end, we won't know until the church adduces it into praxis and then thereby gives a magisterial teaching, this is what happens in these circumstances. But for Catholics now, today, 
right. uh, would you say uh, it really doesn't matter for our lives, uh, yeah, for our it, daily lives? I would say we'd have to, we have to become more medieval in this sense, which is that you look at medieval Catholic, Catholics in the, 15th, 6, in the 16th century where mm. all kinds of crazy papal antics are going on, and yet what mattered for them was their local parish, their, their, their cult of the saints, the, the mass, the processions, the local devotions, and, and their the lives in their, their local community and these things. Now, some of that is upended because of Vatican II, because they go to mass and they find clown masses, mm. or the equivalent anyway. Right, and so we don't find, have, so, we don't so have not local everyone can just parishes ignore anymore. it absolutely yeah. and completely, but they can yeah. to the best of their ability. And sure. certainly, uh, for my own purposes, I, I don't pay any attention to Pope Francis when he does X, Y, Z. You know, if he commands in some way where I have to be obedient... Um, then yes, but has he actually done that? I don't see that he's actually done that. So it's almost I mean, like, even encyclicals, it's just like at this point, encyclicals, it's, there's a line in the, the young pope uh, where um, Ruiyo, the, the secretary of state, he says, uh, oh, yes, uh, you know, he tries to ask, oh, holy father, you know, in the beginning of the series when Pius XIII is just kind of strutting around, not doing anything except smoking. And, um, and then he says, well, are you going to write an encyclical? And he just kind of ignores him. Mm-hmm. And he says, yes, yes, I see. Encyclicals are uh, much quoted but never read. <laughs> that's where we got it's overused vehicle of, of teaching you know in so many things so mm-hmm. um but so so for the for the catholic today just to just to land the plane on that particular point because i think a lot of people are confused on that right you would say uh we have to be medieval in our mindset but we are disadvantaged to our medieval counterparts because we can't just go to our local parish a lot of us right. have to drive you have to drive. But, but we have cars. Yep, we do. So if a medieval is stuck, if he's got in medievals did have crazy liturgy going on, actually. It's one mm-hmm. of those little hidden things that you don't find until you get into history and you get in documents and you find people complaining about the noise at mass, mm-hmm. the cacophony of bad music, uh, you know, the priests doing things they're not accustomed to, the uh, people talking during church. Oh, man, if you hate talking during church, a medieval mass is not for you. People are working deals because they don't see each other necessarily because they're working their farms and their fields and all these other things. Hey, we're going to trade donkeys and these sorts of things. Or I'm going to trade you so much grain for for a donkey or trade you so many clothes for a donkey. Oh, boy. And, uh, imagine, imagine the Knights yeah. of Columbus salesman trying to sell you life insurance during uh, during Mass. That well, would be pretty scandalous, right? That's the equivalent. That's what happens. And this is one of the things that the Counter-Reformation Church is keen to root out mm-hmm. uh, altogether. Okay. To restore the, the beauty and solemnity to Catholic worship all, all over. And already the movements have been going to affect this in various ways. But anyway, so so anyway, so Bellarmine in his own time, nobody batted an eye at Book 2, Chapter 30. Nobody cared. Yeah. Um, but they did bat an eye, particularly certain popes, at Book 5, Chapter 2. That's the and that and and then uh, certain civic governments. So in different ways, uh, that got him in trouble the rest of his life, actually, and, and not not him directly, but except in the one case. In that case, is that uh, Pope Sixtus V, Pope Sixtus V, Cardinal Maldonado, who was a Franciscan, and then he became Pope. He was very imperious. Mm-hmm. He'll do it my way or the highway. Mm-hmm. I'm in charge. I'm the Pope. I know better than you, mm-hmm. and he didn't, um, and most of the time. And he, he like for example with the crisis of the sixth is the fifth Vulgate. Um, you know the the, the Trent Council of Trent had, had decreed the reform of the Vulgate. Bellarmine had actually worked on that commission with a number of other very able scholars, and they'd produced a lot of good working documents in terms of reconciling uh, alternative manuscripts of readings for various things in the Vulgate. 
for solving text criticism issues. And Sixth Fifth decided that, well, since he's the Pope and he's infallible, he's just going to do it all himself. And he does. And he gets, he has one of his, uh, his secretaries copy out the entire Louvain Bible, almost dies from being forced to do it in a, in a, oh, in a back-breaking pace. He just can't keep up with the Pope's demands. Then uh, the Pope's going through manuscripts. He's adding things. He's subtracting things. In the end, he's, he's missed whole verses. And uh, <laughs> now most scholars who've examined it say there's nothing lacking in faith and morals on this. But at the same time, Bellarmine thought this was the closest any Pope ever came to actually erring. Oh, and my. on the day before he was going to promulgate this Bible, he died. So That's a grace. he could never actually promulgate it, which is good. So, but um, on the other hand, so Bellarmine was in France at the time. Now, the reason Bellarmine was in France is the, the sixth French War of Religion. Henri Bourbon, who was a Protestant, was now the heir to the throne because Henri the the third had been killed. They had been assassinated by a crazy Dominican and uh, Raviac. If I'm right, no, no, no. That that's the that's the killed uh, Henri the fourth. Sorry, um, but there was a Dominican. Uh, I can't remember his name. But he assassinates Henry III because Henry III was seen as being too conciliatory to Protestants in France. So now the Catholic League that it formed wants to bring the Spanish in and get mm-hmm. rid of Salic law mm-hmm. and allow the Spanish Infanta to rule because she's the daughter of Elizabeth Valois, who was a French princess, etc. Um, but but you can't succeed through the female. Anyone who remembers you know, Henry V and Shakespeare, at least if you watch Kenneth Branagh's Henry V, which is fantastic watching, um, you know, that, that's, that's the whole first act, right, is, is the whole question of Salic law and whether the French have the right and title properly um, and whether they violated that. So, so now the Catholic League wants the French to violate Salic law and put the Spanish Infanta on the throne to make sure a Catholic monarch will be there because Henri Bourbon can't be trusted because mm-hmm, mm-hmm. he was Protestant who went back to Catholic that after the um, St. Bartholomew's Massacre went back to Protestant and supported the Protestant armies in France, and so Bellarmine is part of a papal uh, delegation headed by a certain Cardinal Cajetan, not the same Cardinal Cajetan that's the Dominican uh, reformer in the early part of the century. Um, he's Spanish, this one. And he's he's basically there to conciliate various parties in the, to, to in, you know, further the church's interests and making sure the crown of St. Louis doesn't land on a Protestant. But also to get at least the you know the people in Paris that were the hardliners to see well what if Bourbon should become Catholic what if we could persuade him to become yeah, Catholic sure then he could become and and likewise Cardinal Baronius is working in the same way, way in Rome with uh, the next Pope Clement the Eighth to to rec, you know to ratify that now Baronius um, is the Baronius is uh, particularly noteworthy because he's somebody that Saint Alphonsus Liguori. Yes, constantly cites. He was a very good friend of St. Robert Bellarmine. He was a brilliant historian. He actually invented the historical science that all historians use today, mm-hmm. all right, which is essentially manuscripts, monuments, archaeology, and in, in the principles of their interpretation. You know, Bell, uh, Baronius uh, you know, uses all those in the Annales. Mm-hmm. It's very influential for Bellarmine <clears throat> in his own works and the controversies and, when, and questions of history. And so likewise uh, for... You know, for other you know factors, Baronius was also very holy, and he was the confessor for Pope Clement VIII. Mm-hmm. And you know, he and Saint Robert Bellarmine are very good friends in in, in all things. So, um, so Bellarmine stuck in France during this whole period during the siege of Paris. But Henri Bourbon has besieged Paris, and the siege fails. The Catholic League has brought in Spanish troops to relieve the city, and Bourbon flees. And so later. <clears throat> 
Uh, Henri Bobon, the solution to this, the sixth war of religion, is Henri Bobon pulls the rug under the Catholic League, from out, or from under the Catholic League, mm. converts Catholics, says that famous phrase, uh, I forget exactly how it goes in French, oh, Paris is worth a mass. And, and so he becomes Catholic again. Mm-hmm. And although later it seems that the conversion was fairly sincere, it was early on it was more pragmatic. But again, grace builds on nature, so yep. uh, that, that, that works that way. So Bellarmine's end of that story goes, he's over there, and meanwhile in Rome, Sixtus V is fulminating over this section of, of Book 5, Chapter 2, where mm-hmm. Bellarmine says the Pope mm-hmm. is not the lord of the whole world and the world his vassal. Rather, the Pope is, has this indirect sovereignty to guarantee the rights of the church and to preserve faith and morals, but not a general sovereignty. Now, a lot of canonists surrounding Sixtus V wanted to say, oh, no, no, he's, he's the, yeah, uh, he's you the know, lord, he's yeah. the lord of the whole mm-hmm. world. And, and, they, and Sixtus V got, you know, got worked up into a tizzy about it. But it's funny how that, so, that, yeah. that's a lightning rod back then, but here nowadays we would, we would read that and say, uh, I'm not going to bat an eye at that. Yeah. That sounds yeah, right? you know, pretty <laughs> common sense. Exactly. But Let's talk about, can we talk about <clears throat> church and state? Right. Uh, so um, let me set this up very quickly. Um, we, if you're watching this podcast on Restoring the Faith, I would encourage you please to subscribe, uh, share the page, um, etc. And consider becoming a patron. It's only through the patronage that I can continue to do this as a hobby. But um, if you're watching, you probably live in some kind of uh, democratic-oriented society in which you vote for your either representatives or for your government or whatever, um, and that's just uh, that's just how it is. We know today that that is basically a popularity contest because we have a real estate developer turned reality TV star who is now the president of the United States. So uh, voting, uh, uh, giving giving a vote to uh, absolutely everybody is is an interesting uh, experiment, shall we say? Now Bellarmine had a. A conflict with King James, in which uh, it, he was talking about the nature of state, right, of secular power, and um, and this was a pretty this was a pretty big deal, right, mm-hmm. uh, because King James was was asserting, and this sounds so foreign to us, but this was totally common in the Middle Ages that a king would assert divine right of kings, that I am only accountable to God and that whatever I say is law and that, uh, you know, and, and that's it, period, end of story, I'm accountable to no one. Bellarmine took exception with that, uh, with that principle. It's a little wider of a question. So in the Middle Ages, uh, very few kings, except possibly Frederick II of the, the empire, uh, ever try to say that, they rule by divine right. They understand they rule with the authority of the church, mm-hmm. custom, and you know the various customs and laws of the land. And, and various theologians and jurists say that essentially there is a principle whereby God is the the proximate source, is the the source, sorry, not the proximate, the source of all authority. Mm-hmm. And the people are this proximate source. They're the source from whence. Uh, he comes into authority, but but that's talking about the origins of civil society. Mm-hmm. And then you have the two swords theory. And the two swords theory is taught by Boniface VIII. It's a very elegant theory, and it, and it works. It makes sense. It's worthy of embracing, and, and I, I'm pretty convinced it's actually magisterial teaching. Well, there's some debate about that, and, and I'm not a theologian, so I'll leave that to the people who are smarter in those, those matters. But 
either way, the reality is the two swords theory did not work in the Middle Ages. You have uh, noblemen, kings, mm-hmm. etc., usurping the rights of the church left and right. Mm-hmm. You have churchmen hanging out at the court looking for favors, favors, right. and never residing in their diocese, dealing with their flocks, right. um, and things of that sort. You have like to the point where in the fifteen, you know, tens. St. John Fisher is probably one of the very few bishops in Christendom. Preaches to his own people. He ordains all the priests that are going to be priests in his diocese. He is reforming the church. He establishes the seminary system in all but name for his diocese. Um, he's uh, always everywhere managing his church affairs. He's, you know, when, he, when he can stay away from court, he can. Uh, he's like the only bishop staying away from court. Everyone else is hanging over there looking for favors from the king or the mm-hmm, king's ministers. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, you know, he's, he's the more or less the exception that proves the rule that the pope and the bishops were mostly interested in money, money so they could live high nobile lifestyles without ever doing their sacred charge. And that's the reality that where the, where the two swords theory actually falls in the Middle Ages, it's on deaf ears um, and, and without cutting them. <laughs> to, so, could you could you describe uh, for those of that never heard the two swords theory? Could you could you condense it down? The two swords theory is essentially that church and state, and this is true. I mean, realistically, this is true. Church and state have uh, to have a job to govern, right? and they both have different spheres, mm-hmm. like a Venn diagram. But there's a certain corner in which they overlap, yeah, and that's in public morals and the confession of the true faith. The state is required to acknowledge. The true faith, so the faith is like it's the soul. The church is like the soul to the body of the body politic. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the church, you know, you know, has governs things spiritual. The state things temporal, mm-hmm. and there's this overlapping sphere mm-hmm. where the two come together. Wherever that happens, the church is superior. And this is this is why, like, you would see uh, King Saint Louis the Ninth would uh, essentially cut out the tongues of blasphemers so that they right. could never again. Uh, utter a, a blasphemy against Almighty God. I don't know that he did that, but he said it should be done. So let's say he did. Uh, and that's a hard thing for an American to swallow yeah. because we think of, oh, what about freedom of speech? What about the ability to say whatever you feel like and not have consequences for it and whatever? Mm-hmm. Um, if we transport ourselves to the Middle Ages and we look in, in France of Louis the, St. Louis the Ninth, mm-hmm. what we're going to see instead is, all right, here is a society where the church is confessed and everyone is baptized a Catholic. Mm-hmm. Blasphemy, true blasphemy, mind you, uh, not a mere accidental saying, but a true blasphemy. Right, uh, is has God as its object, and in that way, Saint Thomas teaches it's actually worse than murder, and that's a hard thing again for modern people to, it, to get their it, minds it around. It is, it is. Oh, well, you killed a man, yeah. and this other ones took the name of God in vain. Well, how is that other one worse than you just killed somebody? Right, right. And the reason is for a true blasphemy, not an inadvertence, not something where somebody doesn't mean to blaspheme God. That's not a true blasphemy. It is wrong and it is sinful, but, but it's, you know, like a, like a vice, a bad habit. Without mm-hmm. the true intention to blaspheme, St. Alphonsus yeah. says, you can't actually blaspheme. So there 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 lies the rub and so so a true blasphemer is somebody who knows and, and who knows and exactly what they're doing exactly and blasphemes god god is the object of the blasphemy they're mocking god who is greater than man yeah and P- and 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 take a quick diversion here the 10 commandments were given to us in order and the first 3 commandments are all about our relationship to god mm-hmm. and taking his name in vain and observing the sabbath and and so forth 
and uh, not having any idols, etc. You know, in America, I just want to I, I want to bring this down to an American mindset. In, in America, the um, the Constitution has been amended uh, many times, but the first ten amendments are called the Bill of Rights. And the First Amendment uh, grants us a so-called freedom of speech and freedom of religion and freedom of assembly. The Second Amendment is there, they say, you know, in case the First Amendment gets abridged. They, you know, a lot of people are fond of saying that the amendments are ordered a certain way because of their priority and that, you know, um, and that the first two amendments are quite important. That's why they're the first two amendments. Um, could you not apply this logic to the Decalogue and say, you know, look, uh, Almighty God, yeah, he opposes murder, he opposes adultery, he opposes all these things. But first and foremost, you creature need to know your place, and you will not take my name in vain, period. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, I, I mean, ju- just placing that into context, and then the, with the two swords theory, and with King St. Louis IX, and, and all these things, uh, doesn't it make sense that if you sin against God, that's worse than sinning against a creature. Makes it somewhat ironic that certain Americans want the Ten Commandments put up in their courthouses. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. But so back to Bellarmine and King James. So this is the situation. Now, the divine right of kings is something enunciated as a doctrine that's rather new. You do have some kings that try to rule like mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. Henry VIII being your greatest and biggest example. Yeah. And other kings are now trying to to ape him. But even before him, you could say Henry II. Um Frederick II of the Empire, certainly, and so on and so forth. But he but, didn't. Didn't Frederick II repent in the end? I mean, didn't he come? Didn't he come to Rome and wear sackcloth? And I think that was, unless outside. I'm mistaken, I'll, I'll put it to a medievalist in case I am mistaken as I could be. But I'm pretty sure that was Henry the Fourth. Oh, um, okay. Frederick II was a you know true pagan. It died under excommunication, unless I'm mistaken. I'm pretty sure that's the case. And, uh, you know, re- rejected ultimately church authority, thought himself above the church. All right. And basically just, you know, below God. Um, you know, and either way about that. So King James, when he is, uh, so to understand James, he's the son of Mary, Queen of Scots. And he has a double claim to the English throne by his mother and by Lord Darnley, who descends also from King Henry Seventh. Lord Darnley ended up being a real loser, actually. Yeah, but we won't go into that. Uh, you can read a couple books on Mary Queen of Scots. I highly recommend by Jean Guy, or Jean Guy. I can't remember how he pronounced his name. He's British, British historian. But a very good book, documentary source, excellent work on Mary Queen of Scots. Uh, John G.Y., if you want to find that. Otherwise, um, so James is raised in the Protestant Kirk. Now, Scotland has a Reformation like England does, but Mm -hmm. they go full Calvinist. Oh, yeah. Presbyters' councils. um, So James is raised in the Kirk by George Buchanan, who was an excellent humanist, an excellent Latinist, strong Republican Calvinist. Mm -hmm. And uh, so he has James whipped routinely during his tutoring. James has to go to the Kirk and wear his hat and cower before the minister while the minister preaches the word from the pulpit. Now, so James uh, tries to rise above these things, and he writes his book, The Law of Free Monarchies, and basically enunciating the principle of the right, divine right of kings mm-hmm. uh, for the first time. And he, he does the same thing in a book to his oldest son, Henry, who dies later, um, would have been Henry IX if he lived, um, enunciating you know, all the principles of monarchy in a book called Basilica and Doron, which is Greek for kingly gift. And laying out basically all the principles of, of uh, divine right of kings and everything. 
So Bellarmine had seen a copy of this book because James had shown himself friendly to Rome at a certain point while, while Elizabeth was still ruling, mostly because he thought he'd attach himself to some plot. And then he, you know, he'd be able to ride its coattails into being king of England, mm-hmm. except that <clears throat> he saw that Rome was too disorganized and the Catholic forces in England far too disorganized to actually make uh, good on it. So instead, he went and betrayed the plot to Elizabeth like he just discovered or they had approached him. He puts himself in a totally different light in the whole subject, right, to ingratiate himself with the ruling class under Elizabeth so they, he'll be able to seamlessly sounds like take a, the throne. Right? Sounds like an able politician. Right, hey. so before that was known in Rome, so Bellarmine reads this, this mm-hmm. book, Basilica and Doron, mm-hmm. and uh, so he makes a commentary on it, which actually can be found in a book, Octarium Bellarminium, uh, which is compiled by a Jesuit named Javier Marie Bachelet, who was um, a French Jesuit, and he gets this, <clears throat> all of Bellarmine's writings and manuscript, as many as he could find, and puts them into print. Mm-hmm. So in that, that's in there. And he makes a commentary on it. First, of course, exhorting King James, why don't you confess the Catholic faith like your mother did? And after that, getting into the political theory. And it starts enunciating the Catholic principle <clears throat> of a constitutional monarchy, and that once a community has transferred itself to a king, it is indeed under that king, like substance and accident. But the king's purpose and ruling is for the people. Yes. And his authority, you know, ultimately coming from God, is filtered through the means of that people. As the proximate uh, authority. As the proximate authority. Not as an elective authority, mm-hmm. but as a proximate authority. Mm-hmm. And that's an important thing, because Bellamy is talking about the origins of political authority, not uh, elections or things like that. That mm-hmm. was far from his mind. He was mm-hmm. actually a monarchist, so th- those types of things didn't occur to him. Uh, but beside that, so then there you got this big problem. You have the gunpowder plot. And um, and I won't get into that. I've gotten to that in other places. But essentially, everyone knows that story. Guy Fawkes, his book of Parliament and all this stuff. Yep. So James brings in the Oath of Allegiance. Catholics are now required to swear allegiance to the English crown and to, to reject that the Pope has the power to depose a monarch. Now, in and of itself, that's not an article of faith. That's somewhat of a, you know... One of these discussions that you know again relates mm-hmm. to the Pope's indirect power. It seems I think like it's a, true. Seems like a Catholic but, could take that that mm-hmm. oath. Yeah, uh, I wouldn't say so because what ha- what it is is that um, the the fact is that was a subtle attempt to deny all papal authority, and at that time um, that was held to be kind of a standard. The Pope had at least that power. But but and but so that denying is... that, so you taking that oath and okay. denying the Pope's authority in temporal matters yeah. was tantamount to denying papal authority altogether. Okay. And and so Catholics dug in and refused to take it. And this was a bit of consternation for James. So what he does is eventually um, Rome, the, the regular clergy in England were, were at, wanted a bishop, like it, with exactly the way you have it in every other country. The Jesuits did not want one, uh, principally because the Jesuits uh, were often running diplomatic missions for the King of Spain in England, and they didn't want interference of a bishop the uh, Benedictines uh, also ran missionaries in England, and they didn't want a bishop, but it was for entirely different reasons. They were overstuffed with Scottish and English uh, <laughs> you know, postulants, and they didn't have anywhere to put them, so they mm-hmm. wanted to send them back to England as, mer- as uh, missionaries. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. oftentimes, of course, these guys would fall away. They'd sure. be in the tavern. You couldn't say mass. Or they would get you couldn't executed, say your right? office. Yeah. You had to dress like a commoner, take up a trade. You just, you just lose it altogether at some yeah, point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but anyway, so that was a huge problem, and the regulars were agitating for a bishop to oversee things to keep stuff like that from happening. Mm-hmm. Um, and also they'd become distrustful of the Jesuits for various reasons we can go into that. Actually, no, I'm not going to go into that. Instead, you could read uh, Father Philip Hughes's book, Rome and the Counter-Reformation in England. 
actually uh, Mediatrics Press publishes that, so shameless plug, but that'll give you those answers to why that is. Um, nevertheless, so Rome appoints, decides to take the middle ground. They appoint this archpriest whose authority is quite uncertain, but seems <laughs> to satisfy everybody for the moment. Yeah. And George Blackwell. Well, he ends up getting arrested and thrown into the tower by the English authorities. And so while there is promised all this better treatment and everything, if he will take the oath of, oath of allegiance and encourage Catholics to do so. He does it. And then he encourages other Catholics to take the oath of allegiance. So Bellarmine finds out about this. And, Beller, and, and so he shows it to the Pope. So the Pope orders Bellarmine to write a response. And at this time, Bellarmine is a cardinal. This is Pope Paul V. Mm-hmm. So Bellarmine writes a response to, uh, to George Blackwell. And this is intercepted by the English authorities. So James is livid that Bellarmine would interfere with English uh, civil you know, administration. Mm-hmm. So he writes a book. So he say, so all the, all the official business of England stops for about two years. So James can carry on this war against Bellarmine in, in book form. And so the first is an anonymous book, although everyone knew the king had written it, uh, was uh, De Triplici Nodo Velcuneo, on the threefold knot or wedge against popery. And he lays out, you know, the response to Bellarmine's letter and so many things. And so Bellarmine then is ordered by Pope Paul V to write a response, which he would rather not be involved in. And so he writes the response, and he writes it under the name of his chaplain, whose last name was Torquatus. Well, the English have a lot of fun with that, because that actually translates twisted. <laughs> and so you can imagine the fun they had with that word. But it was clearly known that James wrote the first book and Bellarmine wrote the second. And so then the, the, the responses all come out under their own proper name. So James writes a response under his name. Bellarmine writes a response under his name. And so the matter of the first book gets into the political theory. The second one is mostly James rehashing the Protestant arguments for why the Pope is Antichrist. And Bellarmine then rehashing his book on the subject to answer James's arguments, another 35, 40,000 words on that same subject again. Um, it, so the first book's more interesting on this front because it gets into more of the political theory. And Bellarmine defends, I've never counseled sedition against a king. I've never counseled the idea of the, the right to rebellion. But the way you've cast things here is right. And then he goes to, to show James up, not mm. just for, the, for his wrong argumentation, but then by providing documents which Rome had where James had promised to be friendly to Rome and trying to unseat Elizabeth and so many other things. That doesn't sit well in England. That, that they, there's, there's a lot of Englishmen who are not too happy. The, the natural English, English xenophobia comes in. We're not happy about having a Scot running our affairs. And so they get ticked off at James. So James feels the need to defend, to defend himself very heavily. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so he starts to defending himself, and, and Bellarmine charges him with like the, the execution of Henry Garnett, uh, who was the Jesuit superior in England. Garnett was snared by the gunpowder plot because one of the major plotters, Robert Catsby, confesses to him their plot and what they're going to do. And now Kat, and, and now uh, Garnett is in an impossible situation. He can't talk about it. Right, but he knows and about so, it. And so he writes to the Jesuit superiors asking him to be transferred out of England, and they mm-hmm. refuse. So he's mm-hmm. stuck. And he can't do anything about it. And Catsby had only given him permission to reveal the confession if he should ever be under torture. Well, and this is one of the things where I actually surmise the English government had actually set up the entire plot. Mm-hmm. Uh, but even if they didn't, the, the, the majority view of historians is that the English came to knowledge of the plot and decided to let it widen. And so <clears throat> it, it's not, and, and all the, the main plotters, Catsby, Percy, a uh, fellow named Grant, no relation, uh, Thomas Winters, uh, Lord Monteagle himself, the guy who sends the letter to James, they were all involved in the Essex plot under Elizabeth, which means they should have been executed as traitors, except they were set free on state's evidence, essentially, to go catch all the Catholics when we tell you to. 
and they have the sword of Damocles hanging over them. And that's and Guy Fox, on the other hand, uh, probably just thought he was just catching gunpowder for the English regiment in Flanders to fight for the Spanish against the Dutch, which now Englishmen could legally do, seeing that King James had made peace with Spain. And that was a big terror to the English government, especially Robert Cecil, because now you would have a well-trained and armed contingent of Catholic Englishmen mm-hmm. fighting for the king of Spain who could mm-hmm. easily just cross the channel. Mm-hmm. And that was the major, motive, major motivation for trying to get some plot to put an end to that kind of thing. So, but anyway, that, that's all far afield. So Bell, that's how Bellarmine gets involved with King James, and it's a very lengthy uh, the treatise. You can find all of that in translation. Um, I believe the book is St. Robert Bellarmine on Spiritual and Temporal Authority, uh, the tra- uh, translated by Stefania Totino. She's a professor at UCLA. Fantastic translation, excellent book. Um, gets all those documents, Bellarmine versus King James. That whole uh, s- uh, scenario... Bellarmine versus James the mm-hmm. first. Is this one of the examples you can point to when you read hundreds of years later, uh, Hilaire Balak, uh, when he discusses you know uh, absolute monarchy as being an invention of the Calvinists? Mm-hmm. You have James the first, who is Calvinist trained, and him not necessarily inventing. Uh, absolute monarchy, but but certainly changing the face of monarchy himself and being a Calvinist. He gives it a doctrine, basically, a written constitution of what divine right of kings is. That's what James does. Although, um, if Bellarmine's statement is, or sorry, not Bellarmine, Belloc's statement is taken to mean all Calvinists everywhere, then it would be false. But if yeah. it's taken to mean English Calvinists, then it's actually very correct. Because like, if you look at Calvinists in Geneva, like Cal- John Calvin himself is the first person in the tradition to argue that republicanism was superior to monarchy. Mm-hmm. And then you have uh, Theodore Beza, who comes after, uh, or is like the second one after, I think it's, it's, it's Calvin, then it's Bullinger, then it's Beza. And Beza is, is the one who also enunciates various republican principles um, and whatnot. So the, the, the Calvinists of Geneva are very much opposed to the idea of absolutist monarchy. Um, the Calvinists in England, on the other hand, cling to it because that, at least in the beginning, because that's the means whereby they can keep their kind of hold on things mm-hmm. on the throne. So you look mm-hmm. at, there's an je- interesting English Jesuit, uh, Robert Persons. And Persons, was a, it, was a, it went to England with Edmund, St. Edmund Campion. And St. Edmund Campion gets captured by an English, uh, English spy, gives him up uh, when he's saying mass. Persons flees the country and never returns. And he mostly lives in Spain or in the Netherlands and writing, you know, pamphlets and trying to support priests abroad and whatnot. Persons comes up with a very interesting constitutional theory, uh, which is very Republican in its its fashioning. And the English government at the time was in horror of it. But interestingly enough, in the 1600s, the English government would come to embrace it. Uh, with the idea that the king should not be allowed to, to rule unless he will agree to certain principles. And for persons, of course, that's to uphold the Catholic religion mm-hmm. and so many other things. Sure. And uh, so you can, couldn't be a legitimate monarch unless you upheld the true religion and such things. So without uh, reference to persons, Protestants in the next century will, of course, come to hold that very same thing as they face an absolute monarchy that is now turning closer to Rome than they would like, namely under Charles I. And uh, with his Archbishop of Canterbury, Bishop Loud, and Loud um, is very concerned by conversions because Charles I is married to Henrietta Marie, a Catholic. By treaty, she's allowed to have her own priests and an embassy chapel. This is a scandal to a lot of Protestants, especially to Loud, uh, 
who, even though he's very high church, he's very Protestant, especially in doctrine. So he wants to combat and show Protestantism can have the beauty of holiness as well. He's also an Arminian. If you're familiar with that question on grace between Arminians and Calvinists, grace and free will and stuff. Um, so he uh, starts raising the altars, even the rude screen. They start raising these things back up, which mm-hmm. were destroyed by Elizabethan iconoclasm. Right. And, and this, of course, leads to the second wave of iconoclasm during the English Civil War, which destroyed virtually everything that wasn't already destroyed mm-hmm. um, under Elizabeth. And it is, everything loud had to kind of reset back up. Right. It's an interesting study, the raising of the altars in England during that time. And, um, and so now the Protestant jurists are finding that absolutist monarchy didn't really work for them after all. And they start moving to more Republican motions, which brings about the, the conflict of the English Civil War. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Which most people don't know very much about, but should except that Cromwell killed the king and uh, the Puritans got rid of Christmas and Charles II came back and fun was back in and he had uh, tons of mistresses and tons of bastard children and all this stuff. But anyway, yes, indeed. <laughs> if anyone knows anything about it, so um, just to just to uh, zero, I guess kind of close out the the story of Saint Robert Bellarmine. We obviously have left a ton out. I mean, this is a this is a towering figure, a doctor of the church. Uh, his care for the poor, his devotion to Our Lady, um, his discourse on grace that you just touched on, all kinds of things that we probably don't have time to get into in this podcast. Why don't you just tell us uh, sort of about the end of his life and his legacy and um, what was kind of like the immediate uh, after effect? Right. You mentioned the question of grace, and we don't have time to get into it, but it was a, a, a big argument that developed between the Dominicans and the Jesuits in Spain and then infects everywhere else. Bellarmine had very certain opinions on it. He was afraid the Pope, Pope Clement VIII, was going to rule the wrong way. Mm-hmm. And so he'd written various things, and he was a public critic of, a way, of the way Clement VIII was going on the subject. So Clement VIII decided to get him out of the papal court. Clement had made Bellarmine a cardinal. Bellarmine never wanted to be a cardinal. He's very clear about this in his autobiography. His simplicity and his holiness suggested to him that he needed the religious institute where he swore as a matter as a vow not to take high offices except under obedience, mm-hmm. including that of cardinal or pope. And so Clement VIII decides to make Bellarmine a cardinal. Bellarmine is quite concerned that he's going to lose his soul. He writes to his friends, uh, all right, I've ordered the house in such a way to just to do the minimum number of things that the pope expects me to be doing, and I needed to get two carriages. I think it's ridiculous, but it's the only way I can get the, all the number of servants the pope needs for me to attend on him. It's ridiculous. But, and he's terrified he's going to lose his soul because now he's possessing things and, and riches, and technically he's an aristocrat. He's a prince, um, which he never wanted to be. And so he bear, and eventually, you know, his spiritual director is to bear with it, to deal with it. And he does, although he never likes it. And then to, during this, this controversy over efficacious grace, Clement VIII decides to banish him for the papal court by making him a bishop. And Bellarmine is gone in under 30 days, almost to the point of impertinence. Clement, even Clement was kind of surprised. He, he, until then, he didn't realize how much St. Robert hated being a cardinal. <laughs> but being a bishop, there's an apostolic office. He can do his old job again. And he did with gusto. So he gets into Capua. Capua had not had a resident bishop in at least 50 years, and things were a mess. And so, and, and to think of it, it's analogous to the situation, say, St. Charles Borromeo, he gets mm-hmm. in Milan, mm-hmm. and there had been no bishop for 125 years. Priests were desperate to find any kind of you know support for themselves, even, because yep. most of the money's going elsewhere. So, the, and so they end up being part of rival gangs, they openly carry weapons and murder people in the streets, and so the saying actually came about in Milan, uh, si vuole andare al fanno, sare un prato. 
you want to go to hell, be a priest. <laughs> and, and so Borromeo comes in with gusto to fix it. It wasn't nearly that bad in Capua, but it was still a mess. And Bellarmine comes in to fix it. First thing he does is he publicly says mass in the cathedral. And everyone's like, oh, cool, it's first mass. But he keeps doing it. And he preaches every Sunday, not just on during Advent and Lent, which is what the people were expecting. You know, it's customary. You only got sermons during Advent and Lent. Mm-hmm. Now he's preaching all year round, and they were not expecting it. They were excited, actually, about this. And he was, he was one of the most fantastic preachers in Italy. It's one thing we didn't really cover. I mean, he was sent to preach even when he wasn't in orders yet back in the 1560s. And he was then acknowledged as being this fantastic preacher. Same thing when he gets into Capua, that, that magic still works. He's preaching, and, and it produces wonderful effects. All of his labor daily is for the needs of the diocese. He looks at all the various priests. What can he do to support them? He is immediately a father to all of them, mm-hmm. um, and not, not a mere custodian or caretaker that's gone during uh, tough times. He's there during all times. Um, even and then he's always looking for money he can get to secure the poor. So even when he was in Rome before this as a cardinal, um, he was always looking for ways because he was a poor cardinal because he wouldn't do the things cardinals did to fund themselves, getting all sorts of benefices that they never actually fulfilled and other things that wouldn't give them the income. Bellarmine never did any of that. So he was always short on income, but whenever he had it, he gave it to the poor beggars in Rome. And sometimes he would get in the carriage and someone would ask him alms, and he would, um, he knew that his master of house, whose name was Guidotti, uh, Pietro uh, Guidotti, um, he knew that Guidotti was always hiding a certain amount of money because he was afraid Bellarmine would spend it by giving it to the poor. <laughs> so then he would, he would say, oh, um, I don't have any money on me. Oh, uh, Signore Guidotti, go back into the residence and get the silver ewer that was given to us by Cardinal Aldebrandini. Cardinal Aldebrandini is the nephew of Pope Clement VIII, and that would be a huge insult to give that away. So Guidotti, realizing this, gets scared, goes, finds the money, squirreling away, which Bellarmine knows is exactly what he's going to do, and gives it to the poor beggar instead. Other times he really had no money, so he would take his cardinal's ring and give it to the, the poor beggar and say, now take this to a certain pawn dealer on the Via de la Scrafa, and he will give you the right price for it, which Bellarmine has prearranged with the guy, and then Bellarmine would get the money, come back, and buy it back, because that also would be a huge scandal, get the ring. And that ring traded hands between him and the poor numerous times. Uh, poor men were to be admitted to, to his residence all the time. So he doesn't change any of this when he gets to Capua, mm-hmm. except now as the bishop, he has a right revenue, and now he uses it for the needs of the diocese. And then any extra money he can get, he squirrels for the poor. And one of the easiest ways to do that was by singing matins in the cathedral with the, with the cathedral canons. So he would. So now, as a, a cardinal, he was no longer required to keep the Jesuit rule, but he kept it anyway. And as a bishop, likewise, so he would say the office, the divine office, mm-hmm. uh, quietly according to the Jesuit rule by himself. Then he would go in and sing matins. Now, uh, the the Roman office in those times would take you about an, um, to do matins would take you about an hour if you just said it. If you sang it, it would take you two. If you think of Tenebrae, for example. Uh, they, they, would, they would sing matins and louds in the cathedral choir, and that would be longer than Tenebrae, because Tenebrae is actually a cut-back office. Wow. And, we, and we, so we, they we, cut we, back a lot of the, the extra um, you know, things and antiphons and certain other the decorations all around. Just, I just want to point out that we think that we're heroes if we do attend Tenebrae, which is a Wednesday of Holy Week. Uh, and and it's it's a multi-hour event, and it's you know you have to drive to find it, and if you can find it, you have to make sure that you're well hydrated and, and all right. that because it takes a long time. It's like a big deal. You're you're saying that that this is longer every than day, and so and so. I mean, I I use the Benedictine breviary, which is similar to the Roman office of that mm-hmm. time. It takes me about an hour. 
Although the difference is that you don't have readings during the summer in the Benedictine breviary, whereas you do in the Roman office. Mm-hmm. Uh, you only have readings on Sundays, the Benedictine, and on, on the major feast days. So, um, but anyway, so so Bellarmine's doing the Roman office. It's about two hours singing it every day, because then he would get the the stipend for having sang with the cathedral canons, and he would save up these stipends, <laughs> and then he he'd, he'd give them in, luxuriously in alms to the poor, right? And so, and all the there was another case where in the in the diocese where there was um, a man that uh, was dying, and he had three daughters, and he couldn't get his mind in in order to make his confession or receive the last rites. He wouldn't receive because he was so concerned what was going to happen to his family when he was dead. So Bellarmine, you know, heard this, and he came to the man personally. Bishops didn't do this at this time, mm-hmm. uh, except someone like Saint John Fisher or Saint Charles Borromeo, etc. And so St. John, uh, St. Robert Bellarmine comes in and uh, tells him that he takes his hand and he promises them that he will treat his daughters as if they were his very own and provide their dowries and make sure they have good husbands and provide for his widow. The man is so consoled beyond anything. And then he makes it, and Bellarmine hears his confession and administers the last rites to him right there. Uh, and then he dies. And then he was as good as his word. He found worthy husbands for oh all three of those gosh. women and uh, provided for the widow. Uh, also, so she could live in the estate that she had been, and not not, not like some might have done. Said, oh yeah, you go to a convent, so I don't have to pay for you. No, he did. He found the money for them. Uh, and just just fast forward and contrast that. I know we're, we're we're running longer on time. Contrast that to 2020. Yes. And where the bishops say, "Oh, you're dying. Well, good luck to you because you get right. no sacraments because of COVID-19." They all come out running the example of Saint Charles Borromeo, who closed the churches, and it's true. Bodies were stacked in the streets, unlike with COVID nineteen. A, B, uh, Borromeo, even with bodies, you know, being stacked in this horrible plague. This is actually the same plague that took out. So, if you know the famous painter Caravaggio, killed his uncle and his father, and they were in outlying counties. It was a very severe plague. Mm-hmm. Um, so, Borromeo did close the churches, but what else did he do? Every morning after singing matins and louds. He would process with the clergy. He ordered the clergy to go with him because he needed more than himself. Mm-hmm. And they'd go through the streets, and anybody who was poor was on the streets dying. He gave them the last rites. He heard their confessions, you know, whatever. People were, were desperate for communion. They would give communion to people through their windows. Uh, and he would do this every single day. He professed twice, once with the Blessed Sacrament and once with a relic of the True Cross for the abatement of the plague. Mm-hmm. And uh, where were our bishops, with the exception maybe of Bishop Strickland, who did uh, he didn't quite do that? No, either. he didn't do that. He stood on but, the street corner uh, one time. But he was, but he was out publicly. He was visible to his people in some way. Fine, so I'll we'll give him that, that much. We'll give him that much. Um, and, and I think at heart, everything I've seen from him is that he, the Bishop Strickland in Tyler, Texas, seems to be anyway uh, a prelate that actually cares. So we'll, we'll give him that much. Say, um, even if he's not doing anything, like he's doing something. And that deserves a little bit of praise because what happens, too, is we see bishops, oh, you're not doing what we want you to do. Sure. And sometimes what we want to do is exactly what you should be doing. And sometimes mm-hmm. it's not. And it's, sometimes it's hard for us to tell the difference because we, we're in these such times as we are. But even when we're right, we still need to look at bishops who are trying and support them because that will give them the, hey, the people are behind me if I can keep doing things like this. And because right now Strickland is against the entire USCCB. Right, and so we need to give a guy like that support. He's saying it's for his traditional mass, and we can only hope better things from there. He's not a Borromeo, but we can pray that he will be. But nevertheless, we go back to the regular stock and trade of bishops. But that's also true for a lot of bishops, in the, even in those times. Mm-hmm. Uh, most bishops throughout all of history, you go back to the early church, and you have your Ambrose, your Chrysostom, your Peter Chrysologus, your St. Augustine, your, um, you know, you used to, 
Saint Saint Basil, and these guys are the exceptions that prove the rule for bishops of their times. Yeah. And you see it even in their own letters. Yeah. Um, and that's back then. Uh, St. Peter Chrysologus says that the road to hell is paved with the skulls of bishops, and mm-hmm. it's attributed to a number of people, but that's who actually said it. Um, you have, uh, you know, in the Middle Ages, same thing. you got a St. Norbert. You have holy abbots like St. Bernard. You have, uh, you know, really great you know, saintly bishops at different places that do good and holy works, and then the vast majority are not. Same thing in the in the in later in the Renaissance. You got Saint Antoninus of Florence. You have Saint Nicholas of Cusa, who would have been a great bishop if he could have gotten in, but the local you know uh, uh, state ruler wouldn't let him. Right? Well, you know you have all these types of things. They're the exceptions that prove the rule. And same with thing for Saint John Fisher. St. Charles Borromeo, St. Robert Bellarmine, St. Francois de Sales, mm-hmm. that is Francis de Sales, um, and, and others, they are the exceptions that prove the rule. So mm-hmm. today, and that's why, you know, as much as the bishops are, are quite wrong and quite worldly and more in fear of COVID than they are of their eternal damnation, especially when you see these bishops that are forbidding sacraments to the dying, which yeah. is against divine law. Right. Uh, you can right. say what you it's, like. It's, it's, it's about, oh, we're so scared. Well, don't be scared. It's against divine law. Be yeah. more scared of God's punishment. Uh, I mean, or else you're telling the people you don't believe. As we're sitting here with, we're like at week 20 or 25 of, of COVID. 15 and, days to flatten the curve. <laughs> I mean, Los Angeles is still closed. Southern California is still closed. Many places still closed. I right. mean, and if you and if you are dying, then good luck to you. You know, I hope God right. supplies the graces that essentially the church saying, doesn't provide to you. And it's essentially saying we fear this world yeah. more than... And the next, yeah. we fear him yeah. that kills the body and not him who kills the soul. Yeah, it's naturalism. Yeah. Um, but obviously, Bellarmine was not a naturalist. It's precisely the opposite in every possible way. Mm-hmm. And uh, he, he actually, and, and he's one of these rare guys as a scholar that attains transforming union. And you see it in the canonization witness documents, people that mm-hmm. are relatively close to his death, people that would come to, to alert him to some request or whatever. And he'd be praying the rosary. They wouldn't even notice they were there. He was so wrapped in the mysteries of the rosary. And then he would say, you know, your eminence. And then he almost like like a not know where he was. And then uh, mm-hmm. and, and those are all marks of transforming union. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And, and you read his uh, Exhortationes Domestice, which again, again is in Latin. Actually, take it with me in adoration whenever I go to Eucharistic adoration, and it's it's an incredible doc, it's an incredible uh, series of conferences, spiritual conferences that he gives. Some of which were even before he was ordained, and and many of which after it, even after he was a bishop, to his Jesuit brethren that he would give on you know, various occasions. They're all full of uh, you know mystical teaching and piety and everything, and. You know, and he was so far advanced beyond where, you know, we are. And, of course, it's rare for scholars because you look at even great scholars in those times, a a Domingo del Soto, a Melchior Cano, um, Bozius, John of St. Thomas, even, who was noted to be very holy, all these great names. They're not recorded to have had the mystical life that Bellarmine did. And they were they were they were saintly souls compared, especially compared to a lot of us, most Mm -hmm. of us. Mm -hmm. Um, But they still didn't attain to that mystical life that St. Robert Bellarmine did. Remarkable, remarkable. Well, this is this has been a fascinating discussion about a doctor of the church. Uh, he was proclaimed a doctor of the church by I th- was it Pius the eleventh? Yeah. yeah. So it took a while to for, to to confer. the whole canonization. Um, in uh, um, I'm trying to remember which author, whether it was Fulagati, 
who referred to it as the first as the last battle, which wasn't resolved in Fulgati's time, the early biographer of Bellarmine, mm-hmm. or whether it was the English biographer James Broderick. Uh, it might have been Broderick. It might have been both, for all I know. Uh, they call the la- that the last battle, where the hundreds of years it took even for Bellarmine's beatification, he was only beatified in 1922. And most of those were political. Again, some of it stemming back to Book 5, Chapter 2 of On the Roma Pontiff, because mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. not, not the, on the side of the papal side, but on the side of the uh, civil authorities. And so you had kings of France trying to get their cardinals and their pay to, to, to register a veto against Bellarmine being canonized because of that section. Yep. Uh, cardinals mad about the position Bellarmine took on the controversy of efficacious grace, tried to block it. You had one uh, advocatus diaboli, uh, self-appointed, I should say, uh, Pacianetti, um, really couldn't stand Bellarmine. Um, he's the one who published Bellarmine's autobiography as a sign of how arrogant and prideful Bellarmine was. <laughs> when you actually read it, it doesn't come out that way at all. Okay. Um, and and Bellarmine's autobiography, too, it's only 40 pages. It's very short. It is was written as, on the request of some Jesuit brothers that wanted a slight account of his life. And so he just took the things that were remarkable. And if you understand where he comes from in, uh, in Tuscany and the nature of those people, it, it, it all lines up and makes sense why, you know, the is the exact opposite of the way Pacianetti interpreted it. But um, nevertheless, you had um, you know, you know, other figures. Uh, Pope Benedict XIV was very keen on that canonization. Mm-hmm. And it was hindered by basically people who were being put up by, the, by Louis XIV not to, to resist that canonization. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sorry, at that time, Louis XV, my mistake. Um, including uh, Henry, the Cardinal Duke of York, who's one of the Stuart uh, children, royal children in exile. Um, you know, being paid by the French to put the brakes on it because they didn't want it. So then it's Vatican I. Pius IX absolutely wanted Bellarmine's canonization, and he wanted to take Bellarmine's catechism and make that the universal catechism for the Catholic Church. All that gets stopped by the Franco-Prussian War and then the subsequent Italian Revolution, and he's never able to get back to that project. Uh, Benedict XV kickstarts that again, and finally Pius IX gets the beatification and then the canonization comes shortly thereafter. And so Pius XI canonizes St. Robert Bellarmine principally for the, um, in a part of his program of basically strengthening the Counter-Reformation in the 20th century. And so you look at other people he names as a doctor of the church, Lorenzo de Brandisi, uh, St. Peter Canisius, along with especially Bellarmine, as people who witnessed and defended mm-hmm. the church's teaching. Mm-hmm. And so just as the counter-revolution or counter-reformation was necessarily against the Protestant Reformation, the, you know, the defense of the church against the modern world was necessary. And that's why the, that particular program of naming these particular doctors mm-hmm. was, was carried on. Well, this has, been, uh, this has been so fascinating, Ryan. Thank you for coming to the heart of America. Uh, you didn't come Welcome. just here to do this. You're passing through. Appreciate you taking a detour to pass through the uh, Restoring the Faith Studios. Please uh, like the page, subscribe to the YouTube channel, consider becoming a patron. And um, the Mediatrix Press has just announced a book club. I'm a member. Fifty dollars a month. You get a book. You get special access to this hardcover book, book too. So no, hardcover so book. Yeah, you get you get access to this brilliant man right here uh, in, in in podcast form. Um, I just went through my first one of those where I got like the exclusive access to his live stream on YouTube, and then it's going to go out to masses afterwards. So consider uh, buying into the to the book club because you get really great books and really great information. 
be the first to get it, and this is sorely what we need. So MediatrixPress.com, $50 a month. Join the book club. Thank you so much, Ryan. God bless you. Thank you for, uh, Thank you for having me. Thanks for being here. Living the Faith Podcast, brought to you by Restoring the Faith Media. RestoringTheFaith.com.